Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, August 28th, 843-661-0937. Good morning, No Shot, No Shot Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So if you wonder if America's in decline, I want to give you a microcosm of why I know America is in decline. Yesterday, on my way home from the beach, I spent about an hour and a half at a drive through line at a fast food restaurant, <laughs> and it cost me eleven forty three for the medium size, not even the, uh, mm. you know, the upsize or the biggie size. But I got a, uh, a combo, just a normal combo, um, nothing fancy, no bells and whistles. Um, I think they don't even ask now, would you like to add, add an apple pie to that? Because I just think they suspect we're about tapped out. And if we're getting a combo, we don't have enough extra money to get the, um, it was 11 dollars for a regular sized um, combo du jour from um, one of the uh, one of the slot buckets. So anyway, <laughs> uh, and I spent about an hour and a half in the line. You know, you yeah. kind of wonder if they're You're, open in there. They're moving slow. Well, I mean, you sit at the uh, you sit at the takeout, or you sit at the drive-through, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and and you, hey, you are feel, they open? You feel like you hit the jackpot if you don't get one of those. Hey, can you pull up to spot number oh, yeah. three? Oh yeah, over there. Yeah, because that's where you age. Yeah, I mean that's that's where minutes <laughs> that's where turn get, into hours. You, you get, but we're not a nation in decline. Not at all. <laughs> Hour and a half at the drive-through. Eleven forty-three for a combo. Um, I would have liked to have had an apple pie, but I didn't have enough money. Maybe I, um, maybe I try a little harder this week, Rev, and uh, and make a little more money yeah. enough to have a uh, an apple pie. It is the week of college football, right? Yay. I mean, that's the uh, the Gamecocks play Saturday, Clemson plays Monday, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, Labor Day night. What do you make of college football today, Josh? You a big college football fan or not really? <laughs> I, I assume that's some kind of sport, right? Well, I mean, you went to App State, dude. Really? Do they have a football program App or something? That's <laughs> one of the better football yeah. programs in that variety football as anybody. I mean, they really and truly do. I remember there was something about Texas A&M. I assume that's another football school. <laughs> you remember that was kind of a you big deal? You went to deal? App State and yes. didn't go to any football games? Uh, I went to one. Okay. Um, but, I mean, App State's a reputable program, a very reputable program. Um that's what they say. Yeah, at that level of football, whatever that level is now, I and mean, I get confused, it's they would be one of the blue bloods. I mean, they really and truly would. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about blue blood like Alabama and Ohio State and somebody like that, but I mean, yeah, App State at that level would be one of the uh, one of the uh, perennial powers of that um, division. They move them around so much. I am unbelievably, I don't want to say disgusted. That's an overstatement. I'm excited. I'm ready to roll. I'm bothered. <laughs> by where we are in college football. I'm um, ready. Well, I mean, think about it. My daughter sends me a picture yesterday. She saw Spencer Rattler get out of his car. And it looks like a car that the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers would be driving. <laughs> and, you know, this, um, this na- name, image, and likeness has just completely shaken at its core the concept of college football, the concept of amateur um, athletics. I don't know if it's good, bad, or indifferent. It is what it is. Um, why would you? Let me ask you this, Rev. We've we've always known the NFL or the pros. I mean, that's the professional. The National Football League is where the pros go to make a lot that's of right. money. I mean, it's the best of the best. So all of a sudden, the the major college football programs, Carolina Clemson would be one. Uh, we know they have players on that team making excess of. Well, I mean, I know for a fact that a few players on either team are making close to a million dollars a year. 
I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly what they're making, but Clemson has three or four or five. South Carolina has three or four or five that are making somewhere in the neighborhood of a million bucks. Now, the University of Texas, I think, has 11 players making over a million. Texas A&M has nine players making over a million. I think Texas and Texas A&M actually have two or three making over $2 million I, I dollars a, a year. I read a story over the weekend. Arch Manning was one of the names, and there was another uh, I forget who it was, but another top-level quarterback. And their NIL deals, they said, are over $2.5 million. And they were comparing that to some of the NFL salaries and base salaries of some some really top-level NFL guys, and they're they're really, they're really blowing it out of the water, blowing those guys away. Yeah, why would you go pro and take the pay cut? Right. If you're a, <laughs> and that's crazy. That but, I mean, is crazy. But that's where we I are. Know. And, you know, I think we're trying to make heads or tails of that. There will be a, a period of time that people are confused about what it was, what it is now. Here's my point. If you're a fan of professional sports, why not watch the best? Why would you want to watch an inferior pro team like the Gamecocks or Tigers when you could watch the the Patriots or the Packers or the Cowboys or the you know the Giants? I mean, if you go watch a true NFL professional football team and, and, you know, how many people in the stands now will yell to the guy behind them, shut up, these are kids playing, you know, a fun game? But it's just not the case any longer. Now, there's a lot of people to blame. There's a lot of reasons to be ah, bothered by where we are today. To me, the number one organization responsible for allowing it to get to what it is is the NCAA. I mean, just their, their, un, ah, their resentment toward the performer. I mean, that's the only way to say it. They're disallowing the kid to enjoy some of the benefit of the enormous proceeds that the sport they uh, are part of put on the field. And in other words, I've, I've said this a million times and I'll say it a million and one times. If college football were true amateur athletics, a coach doesn't make $10 million a year. An assistant coach doesn't make two and a half, three million dollars a year. I mean, in, in the true sense of amateurism, you don't pay a coach in, a, in an amateur sport $10 million a year. But, but the coaches make $10 million. The universities were bringing in hundreds of millions. The assistant coach was getting $3 million, And the college kid was getting the value of that college education. And there's no proportionality to that. There's no balance in that. And the NCAA uh, was forced, or excuse me, a kid um, c- kind of went the route of a lawsuit. Ed O'Bannon at UCLA uh, and his, wanted money for his name, image, and likeness uh, because his, his, um, what about his, 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 his reasonable facsimile. His likeness mm-hmm. would be a better way. His likeness was on a uh, video game, and he was not compensated in any way, shape, or form, but UCLA was. I mean, here's Ed O'Bannon, the recreation of Ed O'Bannon on a video game, and UCLA's getting paid for that. Kids not getting anything. Um, how many Trevor Lawrence jerseys were sold at Clemson? How many Jadavion Clowney jerseys were sold at South Carolina? But the kid was not legally compensated. And I understand under the table, I understand the churches and a lot of ways that they funnel money to some of these kids. What? But everybody was getting rich except the kid. And the NCAA failed to understand that that's just not fair. And they failed to accept that. Look, when TV deals were millions and coaches were making hundreds of thousands, maybe there was some explanation or maybe you could defend when you argue the kid getting the value of that college scholarship is, is consistent with what they bring to the equation, but it got out of control completely and totally out of control. And I remember, was it, was it Jim Harbaugh or um, 
uh, Nick Saban. One, one of the other made, I think, side, I might have been Harbaugh at Michigan, $10 million a year. I think Dabo's at about eight, eight and a half million dollars a year. I'm not saying the guy's worth it or not. I mean, the marketplace is the marketplace, right? I mean, if Michigan feels like uh, Jim Harbaugh's worth $10 million, pay him. If Alabama feels like Nick Saban's worth eight and a half, nine million, pay him. If Clemson feels like Dabo's worth eight and a half, nine million, pay him. But but what's the kid worth in that scenario? The Big Ten television deal, the SEC television deal, d- during d- doing some of the unique calculations, both are over a billion dollars. A billion with a B. That's a thousand million dollars that member institutions will divide amongst the um the members of those two conferences. And and you're telling me that the value of the education is fair compensation to the kid, and the NCAA should have allowed some degree of, of, of payment. I don't know what the answer was, but some degree of payment. And when you don't give an inch and you're on the wrong side of the law, you end up being forced to give a mile. And the next thing you know, you've got a, a, a let's be honest, a middle-of-the-pack SEC quarterback at the University of South Carolina driving $150,000 Mercedes SUV. It's just different. I mean, I'm, not it saying, is. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but it's just different. So the uh, the days of the coach's parking lot being full of high-end SUVs and sports cars it will be shared now by the player's parking lot with high-end SUV. And I, I just don't think it's sustainable. I mean, I, I just, for the life of me, I don't think this model is sustainable. I don't I think fan that. bases. Th- this will be so interesting to me. Take Clemson and South Carolina's example. They have passionate fan bases. One's used to winning a lot more than the other. But despite one winning more than the other, both fan bases have been there. I mean, just always. You can count on Clemson and Death Valley being full. You can count on, uh, you know, Columbia and williams Bryce being full. Um, what is their emotions when they go four and eight and the quarterback's making, you know, a million dollars right. a year driving 150? I, it's, everything's fine as long as you're winning. I mean, sure I can assure you of that. If, if if South Carolina goes 10 and 2, I mean, the kid can drive the $150,000 SUV. The running back can drive an $80,000, uh, $90,000 BMW sports car. It's fine because we're winning. Isn't the money coming from donors? Sure. And at some point, if, if you're not winning, the donors may say, eh, I'm going to I'm gonna set out this one. Right? Fair enough. There, there you go. And, 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 and I, I would argue, I mean, you just said it, Texas and Texas A&M have kids making over $2 million a year. So if all of a sudden you're you're making it legal for unbelievably wealthy schools to fund an NIL, the NIL to play, pay these kids, I mean, does it stand to reason that the you know the schools with all the money are going to win all the games by getting all the best players? I mean, I, I'm not yeah. saying A and M and Texas and Oklahoma and give me another Ohio State, Michigan, Southern Cal, some of these schools that just have more resources than anybody else. Uh, I'm just afraid that's where we're headed. The, the most interesting part of all this to me is the loyal fan bases. I mean, the, the, the loyal fan base goes to the game now, and, and the quarterback of the team that you cheer for and the school you graduated from is driving a car nicer than you've ever driven, making more money than you'll ever make. Is there any resentment there? I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying there is or is not, but, but – the resentment will increase if the player does not perform. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the, the the relationship that America has with college athletics is nostalgic. It's it's pageantry. 
It's amateurism. It, it's the true sense of these kids are not professionals, and they're going to make mistakes, and you kind of tolerate some of those mistakes. Well, that they are quasi-professionals now. I mean, they, you know, the big-time college football programs are what? I mean, they're feeder systems. I, I know they've always been that, and I know kids have gotten paid under um, the table, but it's just it's fundamentally different now, and this is the first year that I think you go to Death Valley in Clemson, you go to Williams-Bryce in South Carolina, and you know that the kid playing quarterback, the kid playing running back, the five-star recruit that you lured away from Alabama, you know that he's probably got more money in the bank than you do. I mean, 80% of the player, well, 50% of the players probably make more than 80% of the fans. That's a different relationship. Mm-hmm. We, we go to NFL games, you know damn well Aaron Rodgers is making more money than you are. <laughs> Right? You knew Tom Brady was making more money than you were. You were okay with that. You never resented that. I mean, he's the best there is, right? I mean, these are world-class football players, world-class performers. You've got kids at universities now. You just said Arch Manning. How many college football games has Arch Manning ever won? None. Not a single game. And there's some reports that he's making over $2 million a year. Uh, The marketplace (laughs) is the marketplace. And it's one thing about if if they're making more than you, but – what if they're making more this year than you're going to make in your lifetime? <laughs> you and know? what if they suck? Right. And and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and on top of that, they're no good. Yeah, I mean that, that's the point I'm making. The resentment of the fan bases is not going to be intense if they're winning. Everybody loves to win. People will look past some, some of the improprieties of what we've done to the game. But, but once you don't win... What happens to the fan base? How disenchanted does the fan base get? Um, how willing are you to write a check to an NIL if your team is four and eight? It's just, it's going to be such an interesting phenomenon and and one that I'll enjoy kind of talking about and sorting through and sifting through. Um, I get it. I mean, I've said a hundred times. I think the kids should have been paid. I think the kids deserve some degree of compensation because they are not the roadie. Who makes the money at a Springsteen concert? The band or the roadies? I mean, the band. I mean, that, you know, Bruce makes more than anybody. He should. And historically, we've had um, kind of a misalignment there. But I just believe, had the NCAA been willing to sit down and be reasonable and say, look, the television deals are in the billions, the coaches are making $10 million, the assistants are making two and a half. we have to do something to, to to get the kid whole, to take care of the kid and his financial situation. They chose to not. They were forced into court. They lost a decision. And out of that came what, what I'll argue is somewhat of the wild, wild west when it comes to um, how much money a kid's name, image, and likeness is worth. 843-66. Well, I, I'm not saying it's good or bad or indifferent. Here's what I am saying. For the first time in my life, I'll go to Williams-Brice Stadium not believing I'm watching amateur athletics. I mean, I know what one, two, three, four, five, six. I know what about seven or eight of those kids are making. And it's more than 90% of the people. I'm more than 75% of the people in the stands. South Carolina's not an outlier. I mean, it's going to be, I I know more about them because I'm a fan and, and a little bit involved. It's going to be the same thing at Clemson. The same thing at Georgia, the same thing at Alabama, the same thing at Auburn, the same thing at at, uh, at Florida State, the same thing at Florida. What sort of reaction will fans have when that quarterback making a million dollars a year sucks for about three Saturdays 
in a row. He's still a college kid, right? I mean, he's still 19 yeah. years old. He's just 19 driving a $150,000 Mercedes SUV. <laughs> Rolling at wherever it is he chooses to roll and doing whatever he is um, uh, choosing to do. 843-661-0937. I want to go to a meeting that very few people are speaking about. We touched on, um, I got some information on um, vaccines and masks and whatnot. Kind of an interesting article I read over the weekend. Someone in the medical community sent me a text toward the end of last week and said, you know, you you, you better be careful saying there aren't peer-reviewed um, studies that show the mask works. Uh, that That's probably fair. I mean, there are some peer-reviewed studies. The majority say statistically insignificant but I want to try to explain how some of these studies work, some of these surveys. I think it'll help all of us understand when they say that the um, the people that wore a mask were 20% less likely to get COVID than those who did not. I want to walk you through uh, a study in Bangladesh, the biggest study of all done on wearing masks or not. It was about 340,000 people in this study. Uh, it's randomized you got some non-random, some random. They play a game with the math. I mean, imagine that. You know, governments around the world playing game or playing games with um, statistics and mathematics. But in essence, that's what they did. Let's do this, Josh. Let's take a break. When we get back, I want to walk you through. I think you'll find it a bit interesting. And then I'm going to touch on this meeting that was held in uh, Johannesburg, South Africa, about um, the BRICS nations expanding and allowing other member nations and some of the minutes – I read about the de-dollarization of the global economy. What have we said historically? That that's the biggest concern, right? If the globe de-dollarizes, if the globe decides that there is a reasonable alternative to the dollar, that could really be um, an accelerant to the end of the American century. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Thursdays. Programming note, we will not be on the air live on Friday, and then Labor Day is Monday. Um, Rez got to make a trip to Florida, and I've got some, I got a, I got a, I guess I could have tried real, real, real hard to reschedule something I've got to do Friday. I just didn't try as hard as maybe I should have. So we will be on the air today, tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday, not on the air live on Friday, and then not on the air Monday because of uh, because of yeah. Labor Day. Best of show, best of show on yep. on Friday and uh, and Monday. So there was a summit in South Africa um, that concluded Thursday. At the conclusion of the, I, I will call it the BRIC summit. Um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. They added. You ready? Saudi Arabia, Iran. Ethiopia, Egypt, Argentina, and the United Arab Emirates. So that, is that a big deal? Well, I mean, it's 40, it, it, it increases the number. It's 49% of the country's population. Uh, you got India and China. And it's about 32 or 3% of global GDP. Saudi Arabia is the only country with a trillion-dollar economy that was added to the fold. But some of the interesting conversations that they had – centered around this creation of a common currency. Remember the the euro, the European Union, uh, had a common currency. It, it looks to me like that is the mindset of these BRICS nations. Now you've got um, you've got India and the rupee, uh, rupee, 
I think R-U-P-E-E, pronounce it however you choose. I've heard it uh, both ways. You got the one in China. You've got um, you've got talk of a BRICS central bank. I make some or made some notes here myself. But um, it's obvious that what these nations are trying to do is create an alternative to the Western dominated, um, you know, monetary system since Bretton Woods in '71, really the end of the Second World War. And the, uh, and the American century. Does it mean more because Saudi Arabia is there now? Well, I mean, I mean Saudi, obviously oil producing well, Saudi Arabia. Well, that, that's what I'm thinking about. Saudi Arabia, Brazil is a big energy producer. Obviously, Russia is a big energy producer. Here's our race in the hole. The majority of conversations that were had between Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa about allowing Saudi Arabia, Iran, Ethiopia, Egypt, Argentina, and the United Arab Emirates um, once again, it's, it's an expansion. I think it's the first adding of nations in 13 years to this organization. And it does, I mean, now it includes about half the world's population and about one-third of the world's um, GDP. But it seems India and China can agree on nothing. I mean, that's our advantage. India wants their currency to be the, the preferred currency. China obviously wants their country or their currency to be the preferred currency and it seems to me that as long as India and China, and I read a lot about it over the weekend, they ain't budging. I mean, India is not going to budge in allowing the wine to be the currency of the BRIC nations. China is not going to budge in allowing the rupee to be the currency of preference in uh, these BRIC nations. And as long as they're loggerheads, we okay. <laughs> I mean, as long we're okay as, until we're not. Well, I mean, until we're not. But but what I'm saying is, if we're trying to, if if there are facets in the world trying to create a de-dollarized economy, and it's going to be hard. Here here's the issue they got, Reb. Collectively, they're a player. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. Collectively, you've got you know Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and then you add to your point Saudi Arabia, uh, an economy north of a trillion dollars. Uh, Iran, Ethiopia, Egypt, Argentina, United Arab uh, Emirates. Um, they, they, but but how do you come up with a BRICS central bank? I mean, it didn't. It's, it's not working with the euro. It's not working in Europe. And, and these countries are more, uh, you know, are, are less. What am I trying? They're, they're less inclined to be the same. A lot of the European nations. There's a lot of history there, and uh, you know, border wars and shared interest the BRICS nations are fundamentally different um, than that and when I read a lot of the commentary by some of these global leaders it, it seems to me that India is really dug in not wanting the wand to be the you know the currency of this BRICS organization and China is equally as opposed to India and I mean that that's kind of where we are and reading I mean it was optimistic to read because China said no way, no how. India said no way, no how. Well, if they don't agree to some sort of compromise, the only alternative is a BRIC central bank. And that is about as far-fetched as believing we can get away with the amount of debt we've incurred and not pay a price at some point in time. So, so yes, I'm concerned that, you know, the BRICS organizations or this, this, um, this alternative to Western-led world policy or global policy it does concern me that they're expanding and they now have, you know, roughly half the world's population, a third of the world's GDP. But but as long as India, China are at loggerheads, 
and the only option is a, a basically a a a BRICS central bank that includes a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of something else. I, I just don't I, I don't think we're on the fast track to the to the the dollar losing its status as the preferred global currency. Let's go to the phone, James and Marion. Good morning, James. Good morning. Uh, I'm wanting to make a comment about the conversation y'all was having on the college athletics. Uh, my opinion is this here. Uh, I don't see anything that was wrong with the scholarship program that colleges have always been using. But as far as paying the, the players to play college sports, I think that it should be more of a, if you come to school here, we'll pay for anything and everything, food, whatever, give you a gas allowance, but to pay a college player and take away their uh, amateur status and all, I, I just, I don't believe that that should have ever been done. Should a, should a coach for an amateur athletics team make $10 million a year? No. Okay. Should we have salary caps? Should, 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 should universities implement salary caps and say, we're not paying a coach of this athletic. There's no coach on any athletics team at Carolina Clemson that can make over a million dollars a year. I agree with that. They should. If, they, if they're worth that kind of money, they should be coaching pro. And that's kind of my point. Thank you. Appreciate the call. That's kind of my They kind of are. I mean, they're, they're letting the players catch up. They're kind of admitting that it's been a long time. Appreciate the call. They're kind of admitting it's been a long time since we had amateur athletics. Because there's, I mean, a, a coach doesn't make $10 million a year to coach an amateur enterprise. You just don't. I mean, it's a professional, I mean, it's a farm team. Um, and I think if you're going to address the players, you've got to address some of the coaches. I mean, if the, if the kid is the performer and the kid is putting his health at risk and the kid is the reason that 70 or 80 or 90,000 or 100,000 in some stadiums, you know, come to the games, then why does the kid not enjoy a larger piece of the pie? I mean, I, it's hard to argue against that. I mean, if the pie's gotten this big, television deals, um, you know, conference networks, uh, the cost of tickets, uh, you know, we, we know that that has increased tremendously. And all of a sudden, the the, the, the the college football budget at Carolina Clemson, it's not $3 million any longer. It's $60 million. Well, who deserves that money if the kid doesn't? That, that's the point I've always made. And I think there was a way to make the kid, uh, that there was a way to improve the circumstance that amateur athlete was playing under. The NCAA just chose to not do that. I mean, the NCAA chose to allow these conferences and universities to hoard money, make enormous profits, pay coaches unbelievable amounts of money, uh, build unbelievable amenities in stadiums, and the kid just didn't get his fair share of that. I mean, I'll stand by that. I don't think the kid up until now has gotten his fair share. I don't know what the kid's fair share is. And the point I try to make this morning is I'll admit I don't know what the kid's fair share is. Is it is it enough to buy a hundred and fifty thousand dollar SUV? Something doesn't seem right about that, right? Give it the old college try and do it in a hundred fifty thousand dollar Mercedes SUV. I mean, something just doesn't. And maybe that's you know a little bit of me being old fashioned. 
but we've ushered in, in this new era. And all I'm saying is, will there be resentment amongst fan bases? That's the only point I'm trying to make. I think that's going to be an interesting um, situation to pay attention to. At Carolina and Clemson, I mean, those are the two schools I'm most familiar with. They're big boys in college football. I mean, obviously, Clemson's won three national championships. The Gamecocks have won none. But they're both grouped in these Power Five conferences. They play big boy football. Will the fan bases treat those kids differently now that they know they're making a million dollars a year and driving $150,000 SUV when they stink it up, when they have two or three bad games? What sort of change in that relationship? I bleed garnet. I bleed orange. Well, I don't bleed garnet as much as I did. You know what I mean? When, when the kid was making a $30,000 college education with his compensation annually for his, um, you know, his exploits on the field, it's just fundamentally different. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's different. And I think it's going to breed resentment. And all I'm saying is if you're going to pay kids a lot of money to play college football, you better win. Because if you don't, I think fans will be turned off uh, by that. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Whoa, that was uh, – y'all took a left on me there. I, uh, well, go back uh, to the other. I mean, say, you know, the, the caller wanted to go there. and I, Absolutely. All I'm going to say about that is I don't see how you have a coach making $10 million a year and the mother and father that sent that child to play don't have a car that they know will crank every morning. Amen. Something ain't right. Amen. So I, I, I'll leave it at that. Uh, on the BRICS thing, I, I like to call the BRICS nations, I'm going to call them the Liars Club, because they've got two things in common. They, they don't care much for America, and they can't tell the truth about their economies. And that's why they're never going to be able to get together, because Russia lies about its currency, and it manipulates its currency. It lies about its economy. China does the same thing. India does the same thing. Saudi Arabia does the same thing, and I'm sure that the other groups that have joined do the same thing too. The problem is there's never any honor amongst thieves, and I, that's why none of them want the other guy to have their currency in charge because they know that they'll do in rapid fashion what they accuse the United States of doing, which is they'll, they'll inflate the currency out the yin-yang, they'll build a bunch of free infrastructure, and then they'll let these other countries deal with the devaluation of the currency. So I don't think it has much of a chance. Um, I don't think that Brazil and China have enough in common. I don't think that India and Russia have enough in common. You know, the one thing about the EU is they have a pretty common cultural, you know, background. These countries don't. I mean, some are in the east, some are in the west, some are in the south, some are in the north. I just I don't, I don't think it's got a chance. Um, I don't think that you can, and I also have never really seen a lot of groups that were bound by hatred that, that accomplished too terribly much. So that's my two cents on that. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it. There's a big debate when you read some of the minutes, big debate about uh, a commodity-backed currency. And you know what they're talking about. They're talking about 71 when Bretton Woods, we took ourselves off the gold standard and fiat currency uh, became the norm. There's a big debate, and I'll try to read more about it. Who was on the side of... <sighs> If we, if we create a separate currency and we figure some way, somehow, some of this is hypothetical, no doubt about it, but it's a work in progress. But if we figure out a way to um, agree that there's going to be some common currency between us, what is, is it a commodity-backed currency or is it going to be, to Larry's point, kind of like the good old U.S. of A does. You just print it and devalue it. 
you know, you, the permanent expansion of money supply. But th- there was a lot of debate in there uh, about some of that. J.P. Morgan actually attended uh, this meeting. You know, you know, the good patriotic J.P. Morgan. Is there money to be? Goldman Sachs <laughs> was there. I mean, Goldman Sachs had someone on the ground. They want to handle that well, business. Of course they do. They want to do some of the foreign transactions. Sure. Uh, these companies' businesses don't stop at the uh, at the border. I just think it's interesting. I mean, I'm not saying it works or doesn't work. I just think it's very interesting that Brazil, Russia, India, China, Saudi Arabia, excuse me, South Africa allows Saudi Arabia, Iran, Ethiopia, Egypt, Argentina, and the United Arab Emirates, uh, Emirates, uh, darn, Emirates, to join um, the organization that has not allowed expansion in about 13 years. And it is considered, um, you know, theoretically to be an alternative to Western-led, um, you know, finance and central banking and who runs the um, the world's economy. Now, they did mention in what I read that, you know, 46% of all foreign exchange payments um, – in the, in the global system were made in dollars. That that would have been July. July was the most recent report, so roughly half of all foreign transaction payments. Now, five years ago, that was about 62 or 3%. So it's gone from 63 to 46%. I mean, I, I don't think Larry's defending what we've done. He's just saying, I'm not sure they're the ones that could come up with a viable alternative. It seems to me that the answer to all of this is to for, for us to just admit that we've been all Keynesian economist and it doesn't work and we've got to get some we got to get back to some reasonable reasonable um, monetary policy in America you know BRICS nations and so, some of these other experiments that are people are trying around the world it, it, it's not that well I mean I, I guess it is an anti-American movement but but I think they see a weakness in the dollar is the reason they're motivated, and they see reckless and careless spending on our behalf. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Thursdays this week. 843-661-0937. Our number, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Breeze, good morning. Hey, you know, kid, those guys are making a very valid argument. Everything they say about America and the dollar is true, and uh, that's the bad news. But the good news is, is they're just, just as corrupt or more corrupt than we are, like you were saying. And their bottom line is there are no good countries, there are no good cover- governments anywhere. And so at the end of the day, I guess we're we're just going to be happy that the whole world, people like you and I, are always going to be getting screwed over by our governments in our country. But, I mean, you know, they're, whatever monetary thing they come up with will be just as worthless as what we have, you know, so... They're all a bunch of gangsters and criminals. And speaking of which, did you see over the weekends, I had people sending me these videos, supposedly the gangsters, and um, they called them the gangsters, and then they had to use the N-word for Trump, you know, basically all of these black folks um, all saying that Trump is one of them now. Just, he's been ignited four times. You know, so when you get thrown in jail in, a, in Zone 7 in Atlanta, Georgia, you in the hood, but you know, you know, the hood's got you. The hood's got Trump's back. I'm wondering if there's any validity to that. I'm wondering if uh, African Americans, quote unquote, the, 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 that that hood thing, whatever they keep calling themselves, which I don't necessarily believe that they are truly what they're saying they are. I think that they're saying that just for the attention. I think if they care enough to do these videos, they probably 
should be on Biden's your side, and we should be on their side because they are getting getting screwed over as bad or worse than we are. And any African American that believes in God, just like any white American that believes in God, is being laughed at, scorned, ridiculed. Now they may not do it to their face, but any Christian, you look at any of these rich white that go godless Democrat fascists, they look down on us with utter contempt. And if that, and, and if you're lucky, they just look at you like you poor, dumb, ignorant, dumb, you know, smuck. So we do have a lot in common and a lot to be fighting for. And what we should be fighting against is the Republicans and the Democrats and every, every the whole system. We should be raising Katie. We should all be together on this. And a lot of these guys are saying that they got fooled the last time and they won't be fooled again. Well, guess what? Everybody has been, been getting fooled for probably 100 years. And it's about time we quit getting fooled all the damn time. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. I don't know how anecdotal that is. I mean, I, you know, I had some of those same videos shared with me. Rev asked me uh, this morning, did you read where that there's, a, there's some, some data out there that says – Trump is going to get 20% of the African-American vote. Um, I, I, I see a lot of information that leads me to believe he's going to do better than average with African-American males. I still don't see a turn with African-American um, females, but there's no doubt Trump's going to do better with African-American males. Now, is it because he's perceived as, you know, um, persecuted and the legal system's treating him differently than it? Is there is is there any... Uh, is there any camaraderie there? You know, um, African-American men believe the judicial system weights them differently than anybody else. Uh, you know, Trump kind of makes that same complaint and argument. Um, I mean, his would be political persecution, not criminal persecution or, or criminal prosecution. I don't have any idea how anecdotal that is. I don't know how, many, how much mainstream that is. I mean, if you're a Trump voter and you want Trump to win, you're going to kind of hang on to anything that, that creates optimism, I'll say it, and I'll stand in my guns. If the election were tomorrow, Donald Trump would get elected president. I mean, I believe that with every fiber of my body and the very people who are trying their dead-level best to beat him or empowering him. I mean, I, I'm convinced of that. I've seen the data. The only thing I've not seen is the the number of independents since, you know, take a load off Fanny's indictment in Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, that's the only set of data I've not seen. Trump raised $7.1 million in, I think, 36 hours after the uh, the mugshot. $7.1 million. That's nothing to sneeze at. And, that's record-breaking. Well, I mean, in, as... any, in any sort of um, campaign, I mean, presidential campaign spent a billion dollars. So at the end of the day, $7.1 million is a drop in the bucket. But raised off a mugshot? I mean, $7.1 million raised off a mugshot, and if 20% of African-American males vote for Donald Trump, it's over. I mean, it, it's over. He's going to be the president of the United States, and I said a couple of weeks back, the, the Oliver Anthony song was a kind of a reminder that this, 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 uh, this sensibility or feeling or emotion has not dissipated. You know, th- there was a big belief for a long time, that the Democrats were going to try and help America choose Trump as its Republican nominee, believing they could easily beat him in November of 2024. And I just never bought that. I, I just don't. 
Um, I've done the math. I've talked a lot about the math here. I don't know of another Republican that can get 75 million votes. And if we don't believe Joe Biden got 81 million, then, you know, you'll let the chips fall where they may. But but the first, if you're a Republican, to me, you want to you want to nominate the guy that you believe can get the most votes. And Trump has proven that he can get somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 million votes during COVID. So what can he get with, with a, you know, a, a, a dementia-ridden Joe Biden? You know, and, and I said yesterday, you want to wonder if America's in decline? I sat for an hour and a half in a drive-thru at a fast food restaurant, paid eleven forty-three for a fish sandwich, medium fried, medium, you know, um, soft drink. That, 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 a lot of people relating to that. A lot of people are feeling that. They're seeing that. They're they're sensing that. And it's hard to blame Trump for that. I mean, it's real hard to blame Donald Trump for you know eleven forty-three fish sandwich, medium fry, medium soft drink, eleven forty-three, and you sit there an hour and a half. Because they can't find people to work. Because it's pretty lucrative not to work now. And that's just kind of where we are as America. And it's hard for me to fathom that there are people out there who genuinely, sincerely believe we're better off today than we were when Donald Trump was president. It's absurd. We're nowhere near as good as we were. The economy's not as good as it was. But as it relates to Breeze's comments about African Americans, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea how anecdotal or not some of those videos are, um, you know, people like to be famous. People like to shine bright lights on themselves. Is that, is that, um, is that representative of a movement in the African-American community? I don't know. I don't have any idea, but I think Donald Trump wins Georgia. I think Donald Trump wins Pennsylvania. And I think Donald Trump wins the presidency. I don't know that he wins Arizona. He doesn't have to. If he wins Georgia and Pennsylvania, he's president of the United States. And I think Pennsylvania is trending Trump's way. I really do. I mean, I understand. Really? I understand what Kahaley says about you know Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. You know the um, the high percentage of Americans who vote in Democrat precincts. <laughs> Some of those, um, uh, you know, may, they just do a good job of getting out the vote. Uh, yeah, you that's know, the, what they do. Well, I mean, the concern I've got is can the Republicans match that? You know, we hear these pro- bank the vote. I'm I'm tired of slogans. I'm tired of catchphrases. Bank the vote. You know, one eight hundred bank the vote. Screw that. I mean, let's let's I mean, let, let's figure out a way to build a machine that can match what the Democrats have done in getting ballots in people's hands and and getting those ballots counted. Legitimately, I I, I don't know. Did Dave Baker really vote? Yes, he voted. Does Dave Baker know what he voted on? Probably not. But his vote counts. I mean, we we got to accept that as reality. That's what the Democrats are doing. They're putting ballots in people's hands, and they're harvesting those ballots in ways that Republicans can't fathom. And Republicans have to match that intensity some way, somehow, or no Republican is going to win. Oh, yeah. But I think Trump gives us the best chance, us being Republicans, to win in 2024. Um, It's interesting to me. How many independents in some of these moderate swing districts and precincts, how many will how many of those have sat in a drive-through for an hour and a half and paid eleven forty-three for fish sandwich, medium fried, medium soft drink? I mean, I, I would imagine. I'm. I, I know that's not anecdotal. I know I'm not the only one who has sat in a drive-through. I mean, I've heard it over and over and over again. Hey, I went to this fast food restaurant and I had to wait thirty minutes because they didn't have enough people to, you know, to staff the place, and it cost me thirteen bucks to get out of there. I mean, I'm not saying Biden's fully to blame or all to blame for that. But he's the president. Well, it's the economy stupid. 
And I think real-life experiences like that create momentum for Donald Trump to get reelected. It's still interesting to me that the media is trying to talk themselves. And here's how you know Trump could win, because they're trying to regenerate a debate about is Trump's nomination inevitable. You know, before it was he's going to win, nothing we can do about it, nothing you can do about it, it's inevitable. And now they're like, uh, maybe, you know, maybe Ron DeSantis could catch wind. Maybe <laughs> these things Mike Pence are saying, because um, the last thing in the world they want to do is lose to Donald Trump again. They lost to him in 16. And and being honest, guys, they're not sure they beat him in 20. But they know the election got certified. They know that they things worked out. Let's just leave it there. Things worked out in their favor in 2020. But in their heart of hearts, they're not sure their guy got 81 million votes or they're not sure how he got 81 million votes, and they're not sure they can do it again. That would be a better way of explaining They're not sure that their guy can get 81 million votes again. And, you know, you got Trump sitting there. And, um, I mean, I'd, I'd love to ask Robert, and I didn't last time he was here. He kind of sort of volunteered 77 million. You remember that when he said Trump's numbers? Because I was talking about, you know, Robert, I've done the math. I don't see how another Republican gets to 75 million and he was talking about some of the independence that Trump may gain the support of. Um, you know, I don't know how many, the 14 or the 11 to 14% never Trumpers, I, I don't know how committed they are because I'm not one of them. I, I don't have any idea. I know a lot of never Trumpers. Are they soft never Trumpers? Are they hard never Trumpers? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I don't spend a lot of time arguing with them. They've let it be known to me that they're under no circumstance voting for Donald Trump. Do they mean that? I don't know. How many drive-throughs do they have to sit in for an hour and a half and pay eleven forty-three for a fish sandwich to say I'm going Trump, man? I mean, you know, I'm I'm, I'm voting for for Orange Man. I mean, he may be bad, he may be crazy. Uh, he had more money in my pocket. Yeah, when he was my, president. my world was a little bit better when that guy was the president. And and I'll tell you, it's so bizarre to me that the media and the Democrats are trying to convince people that what they're living isn't really what they're living. This economy's good. Bionomics are working. Uh, we, we talked with Williams a little bit last week about the unemployment rate. Uh, the unemployment rate, excuse me, the workforce participation rate was 67% when Donald Trump left office. It's 62% today. It's as low as it's been in about 30 years, 35 years. Fewer working age men and women are working today than in the last 30, 35 years in, in America. It's about 62-ish percent. I mean, that's a big number. Um, I read a statistic, I mean, a, a, a staggering statistic about the number. I don't want to quote the, the number. The number of African-American males between the age of 18 and 35 that are not working. I mean, it was staggering. Yeah, I mean, it's not like 6 or 8%. I mean, it's like 31%, 28%. I can't remember the number, so I don't want to uh, misquote it here. But the African-American male between 18 and 35 that are unemployed, why? I mean, why, why are they unemployed? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I, I don't profess to know the answer to that question. But the Democrats are trying to convince America that this economy is okay and it's getting better day by day and Bidenomics are working. And the American people just aren't buying that. I mean, they just see up close and personal what it costs to live. I mean, if, have you seen the statistics lately? Um, let, let's do this. 1.7, excuse me, $17.5 trillion in household debt. 12 trillion in mortgage debt, 1.7 trillion in auto loans, 1.8 trillion in student debt, 1.3 trillion in revolving credit card debt. Um, the total mortgage debt today 
is about twice what it was in 2006 before uh, the world blew up. That's not a healthy economy. It's not at all a healthy economy. It really goes back to what we argued about with BRICS, you know, that this, this commodity-based currency. If, if BRICS decides to do this, and I, I'm like, I don't think they will, but it's interesting political and, and radio fodder, if they were to do that, that they're talking about the re- the only reason that they're seeing opportunity is because what we've done the, to the dollar. I mean, that's the only reason that some of these nations are considering, you know, an alternative to the dollar as the preferred uh, you know, current exchange currency for global transactions is because how reckless and careless we've been. Um, and and I, I just think that we're getting to the point now that people kind of shrug off what Biden says. I mean, he's got an ice cream cone in his hand. He says he worked out. It's, it's almost like a comedy. I mean, it really is. It's, it's, it's not funny. But it's not funny at all. I mean, it's, but it's like a Saturday Night Live it is. skit. He walks out of a gym, some Pilates shuffles theater. Out. Yeah, well, he shuffles out with Looks an ice confused. cream cone. Well, he is confused. I know. He doesn't know where he is. And somebody told him when he walked out, hey, tell him you worked out for an hour and a half. And that's what he does. I mean, he walks out with an ice cream cone in his hand and a towel around his neck. And he says, I just got through working out an hour and a half. Nobody believes that. I mean, who honestly believes that Joe Biden worked out for an hour and a half? I mean, it's, it's absurd. It, 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 it's, it's, it's state-run media. And remember when he walked out, they asked him a serious question about that plane crash in Russia that killed the opposition leader. And he was like, well, I don't know anything about that because I was working out. Yeah, I've been working out an hour and a half, doing Pilates. Oh, really? And, um, you know, strength training and all those other um, So, so they wouldn't things. interrupt his workout if he was working out. If he was working out to say, by the way, here's some major international news. Did you say you interrupt or wake up? <laughs> I mean, that, that's the better right. question. You know, how many naps does Biden take a day? How many, how many, how many times a day does he doze off? I mean, the American. I mean, seriously, that that's where we are. It's a fair. How many times a day does this president doze off and have to be kind of jarred? We saw him and, doze and off in, up? in Maui at well, that I mean, memorial. Joe Scarborough said we should be ashamed of ourselves. For insinuating that Biden dozed off, he was having a reverent moment. He was bowing to to give, you know, in spirit to to kind of um. Okay, Joe. Th- well, I mean, that, that's what the Democrats are arguing, and, and it'll be very interesting. Does it work? I mean, are Americans have Americans become that stupid? Are Americans dumb enough to believe that this guy knows what he's doing? I don't know the answer to that, but that's the question. Are the American people stupid enough to believe this guy knows what he's doing? I mean, I'd argue in his best day he didn't. And he certainly does not now, but I stand by my comment. If the election were tomorrow, Donald Trump wins. Now, I don't buy this landslide. I mean, I don't think it's a landslide at all. I think it's still a quarter million people. I mean, what did he lose by? 40,000, somewhere thereabout. I think he lost by 11 in Georgia, 16, and it was a Pennsylvania. It might have been Nevada. Anyway, I, 40 or 50,000 votes go one way and not the other, and you've got a different president. Forget the popular vote. Um, Kahaley did say that if Trump is within two at the popular vote, he's going to win. And right now it's about a dead heat. I mean, I think the most recent poll I saw heading down one, one and a half, maybe two percentage points. But um, but no, I think the media shifted gears. I think the narrative now is we better put him in jail because if we don't, these crazy people may elect him back to the White House. Or you're hearing the chatter about that 14th Amendment. And also, I think it was convicted Repu- felon. And Republicans all. in New Hampshire maybe are potentially getting on board with that, and it's the insurrection 
uh, you can't, you, you're disqualified if you participate well, in an the, insurrection. There will I be others. The, I mean, less than conservative states probably buy into into some of that. I mean, I, I just don't think I don't think there's anything going to stop him from getting the Republican nomination. And I think he's in a much stronger place than he was in 2016 or 2020 because he's running against a guy who is out of it. I mean, it, the American people know that Joe Biden has dementia. The American people know that he's not calling the shots. And the American people know, or a lot of Americans did what I did yesterday, sat in a fast food drive through for an hour and a half and paid eleven forty three for a fish sandwich, medium fried, medium soft drink. Whether it's Biden's fault or not, I mean, they're selling you on Bidenomics are working, right? I mean, that, that, that's kind of the narrative. It's working. Remember when he leaned over the <laughs> It's working. <laughs> I mean, it, wow. Okay. Yeah. Not working for me, Joe. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. You know, one of the interesting parts of the Republican primary is there's a candidate that they've tried to label as extreme and radical, and there is. But there's absolutely a candidate in the Republican primary that is radical, is extreme. His name's not Donald Trump. Who is it? It's Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, he is a very (laughs) radical and extreme candidate. I mean, he wants to just completely obliterate normalcy. He wants to do away with everything that was and replace with something um, new and refreshing. So when Trump gets accused of being radical and extreme, there's really nothing extreme. The only extreme thing about Trump is how aggressive our government has gone after him. I mean, that's extreme. That That is radical. That that the DOJ and, and you know, I, I guess local law enforcement agencies, and I'm talking about local prosecutors, would so aggressively go after a former president, uh, presidential mugshot. We've never had that in American history. Now we've got a um, an Atlanta Fulton County district attorney or prosecutor who has bagged the big one, I guess, you know, and RICO charges and these uh, j- just a uh, overt act one, two, three, four, five, six, conspiracy and all these other sorts of things. But there's nothing extreme about Trump's administration. There's nothing extreme or radical about Trump's presidential campaign. I mean, it's pretty typical, to be honest with you. He's not your typical candidate, but the way they go about their business, some of the positions they hold, I mean, is it extreme to say secure the border? Is it extreme to say don't trust China? Is it extreme to say we don't need to send any more money to Ukraine? I mean, that those are controversial positions, but they're not extreme. They're not radical. They're very much in the mainstream. Um, now, one guy that has some pretty radical and extreme positions and the American people seem to have an appetite for is Vivek Ramaswamy. He was on um, Chuck Todd's Meet the Press oh. yesterday and offered up kind of an interesting um, but radical scenario for uh, what he thinks Mike Pence. I think this is the clip when they asked him about Pence. And um, as usual, he has a, a pretty intelligent answer it's extreme it's radical but it's intelligent let's go there josh you ready a couple questions you didn't get a chance to answer at the debate most of the candidates on stage wednesday night said mike pence did the right thing on january 6th do you agree i would have done it very differently i think that there was a historic opportunity that he missed to reunite this country in that window what i would have said is this is a moment for a true national consensus where there's two elements of what's required for a functioning democracy in America. One is secure elections, and the second is a peaceful transfer of power. When those things come into conflict, that's an opportunity for heroism. Here's what I would have said. We need single-day voting on election day. 
We need paper ballots and we need government-issued ID matching the voter file. And if we achieve that, then we have achieved victory. And we should not have any further complaint about election integrity. So what would, so what I would, would have you have done? Through the Senate. So what would you have done as, with Mike Pence? You would have so not my certified the election? So in, in my capacity as president of the Senate, I would have led through that level of reform, then on that condition certified the election results, served it up to the president, yeah. President Trump then to sign that into law, and on January 7th declared the re-election campaign pursuant to a free and fair election. I think that was a missed opportunity, but that's the kind right. of spirit we're going to need to unite this country rather right. than sweeping those concerns under the rug. See, I think that's an interesting. He says, I would have made a deal. I mean, I would have certified the election. But, but as part of certifying the election, I would have asked for making Election Day a national holiday, single-day voting, and paper ballots. How many agree with that? I mean, we live in, a, we, we live in, a, in a, an era of a Twitter and Facebook and the digital media, um, Internet sensations like Oliver Anthony. How many believe that the best way to have a more secure election is paper ballots with serial numbers? I've heard him talk about this. You know, he won't say serial number on a ballot so we don't lose chain of custody. We can account I, for I all think the it ballots. Would be a lot more secure. You but can I mean, have that, more that's, confidence that's in just it. I mean, a wasted opportunity is what he says. Yeah. You know, I would have I would have certified the election, but as president of the Senate, I would have made a deal. I will certify the election under these conditions that this is the last election we conduct in this manner of fashion, that the next election in twenty twenty, I guess twenty twenty two would have been the case. Um maybe I'm probably talking about presidential elections. Make election day a national holiday. How many agree with that? Um, single do. day voting. How many agree with that? I do. And paper ballots. How many agree with that? Let, let me ask you this, though, Rev. The single day voting. What about somebody who honestly has an issue on that day? I, I think you make exceptions for what the. What about that's not what he said, issue. though? I, I know. I know. But what I think is, yeah, you have to make exceptions so people can legitimately vote if they have an issue. But, but who gets day. to decide what the exceptions are? Well, that I'm kind of curious about that, too, Rev. Like, what what would come up that would take precedent over voting? Well, I mean, let's say, you, let's say you're traveling with work. I mean, let's say you've got a job and you're out of town on Election Day. I mean, you want to vote, but you got to be out of town. Your job requires you to be out of town. That day, I mean, get military your, people stationed somewhere sure, in sure. the world. But I'm, I'm thinking about in our world. Yeah. I mean, let, let's say that Josh. Let's say that we work for a, we were a salesman for a steel company, mm -hmm. and on the morning of election day, we had to be in Alabama, meeting with a big, you know, steel business about a, an account that we're trying to sell them steel. Um, I mean, you can't tell your boss, hey, I can't go because I got to vote. I, I just think you got to be careful about single day voting. I don't mm -hmm. know the answer to that. I mean, maybe that's where you start. I mean, the um, the Democrats want voting season. They want to normalize voting or ballot harvesting. Um, they want to have, what, 30 days. They want to have unsolicited mail-in ballots. Uh, maybe he's using this as kind of a counterpoint or a starting point on the other end of the spectrum. Um, I'm, I'm not opposed to making Election Day a national holiday. I'm not opposed to paper ballots. I am opposed to single-day ballot or single-day voting. I think there's got to be some compromise there for people who have to travel and work people yeah, who the, can't the, the compromise or the the non-single day voting has to be a legitimate exception and you would have to sh show up under some you know time frame to your local election office with your id your government id uh, to get your vote to count and to be able to, to but but could we do we have the infrastructure in place today to facilitate same day voting I mean, if everybody showed up on election day, 
do we have the, the, the infrastructure to facilitate all those people showing up at 7 o'clock that morning and closing the poll at 7 o'clock that evening? I understand the, the notion. I mean, I accept the premise of we've got to have more secure elections. I just don't know that, that single-day voting is achievable. I mean, we can't let what's, happen. What's, what's the alternative? Well, I mean, I mean I, you, you open as a smart one. people sitting in a room trying to figure out a better deal. You know, I think there's got to be some reasonable. Once again, I you know, I'm not opposed to some what I what whether it's paper ballots or not. There has to be a corresponding serial number. In other words, that ballot has to belong to you. Nobody can fill out Josh's ballot, but Josh. There's got to be a chain of custody with that ballot. That there's got to be some identification that Josh proves this is his ballot. This is me casting uh, my vote. The only issue when he said that yesterday that I take is single-day voting because, once again, what if you're a nurse working a 12-hour shift and you have to be at work 7 o'clock that morning and don't get off to 7 o'clock that night? Are we going to disallow that person from casting a ballot? I mean, that's, that, that's voter infringement. That's right. voter I suppression. Think the, I think the rule should be single-day voting with exceptions. But who gets to set the exceptions? Well, you, you know, you have to set them. I mean, sure. Somebody and what, has to decide. What are reasonable exceptions? Right. What are reasonable? I think your employment is a reasonable exception. I think a family emergency is a reasonable exception. Um, but but my, my main point of contention on same-day voting is I don't think we can handle it. I mean, I don't think we can get uh, enough people to work at the polls and enough precincts. I mean, should – okay, let me ask you this. Should someone – be forced to stand in line four hours to count a, uh, cast a ballot. I mean, can't we do better than that? I think that the harder you make it, the better it will be because some, you know, the kind of person, and this is just my opinion, but I think the kind of person that's not willing to wait four hours in line to cast their vote shouldn't be voting. But that's not what he's arguing. I don't disagree I with you. I mean, you've heard me philosophically. I think the fewer people that vote, the better our republic is. I really believe that. I agree. I mean, that, that may be anti-American, but you're going to have people who understand what they're voting on, who take a sincere interest in what they're voting on, not someone who gets at a car, bus, train, and shows up at the poll, kind of in the congregate or in the, that's just not, or, or congregationally, you know, gets there. I, I, that's not good. I mean, that's not healthy for a republic. But, but, now, I guess Ramaswamy would argue that, you can do single-day voting if election day is a national holiday. I mean, if people what if you made it two days? What I mean, there are three days, two day, I mean, maybe two three days. days. I, I don't know. As Rev says, what is the compromise? Maybe it's three days. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just think single-day voting is real ambitious. I, I don't have any problem, whether it's paper ballots, I don't have any problem with a, a more connected ballot to that to that voter. Chain of custody and serial numbers. I mean, I think there's a way to do that. Um, Josh gets issued a ballot. The ballot has a serial number. Josh has to provide that ballot with that serial number and his ID. I mean, that, that's the chain of custody. Jo hey, um, Josh with a weird name showed up at the, uh, at the election in such and such, <laughs> and we were able to count his ballot because it was a valid ballot. It was the ballot that, that we mailed to him. It belonged to him. I just think, I mean, you're not going to stop malfeasance. I mean, you're not going to stop voting impropriety completely. Nobody believes there's a perfect system out there. But I just believe when, when Ramaswamy says single-day voting, I'm scratching my head going, 
Ah, I, mean, I just think that's too ambitious. Election season isn't that a relatively new phenomenon? I mean, sure, it we, is. we've had you know the the goal was always single day voting. It's election day, go vote. There are some absentee um, situations where it's acceptable to put in a ballot. You know, the, the week before or whatever, because you're going to be gone out of town and can't vote on the day of election day. But elections, we were able to handle this. Um, over how many years and years and decades of voting, and and seemed to be there weren't that many contested outcomes, but, right? But if we had the chain of custody in place, if we had a ballot with a serial number, I like it. And if that serial number belonged to a certain voter, it doesn't matter if it's a week before or a week and a half before. I mean, to me, that takes the uncertainty out of this. What we've got now is a system that has very little chain of custody or accountability. And it's allowed to happen over, you know, 30 days or so. And you're asking for impropriety if that's the case. You're asking for people to play games with the system that is important to the preservation of a republic. What if, and, you know, just kind of spitballing ideas here, what if you made it where you could pick up your ballot early, but that is also, it's a viewed process. It's something that goes on maybe a month prior and so on election day, there's two lines, one to get your ballot with your serial number and everything, and then one to, f- like, someone watches you fill it out and turn it in to make sure it was you who who did it. That, that's reasonable. You, something that, that, along those lines. Yeah, I mean, it, once again, we're spitballing here, but that, that's a reasonable alternative. You, you, it, we've got it. I mean, unless something changes in the current format, the Republicans have to play ball on the field they're being asked to play ball on. I mean, that's just the nature of the business. Um, what Ramaswamy wish had happened didn't, right? So we're, we're, we're still under kind of the same, I mean, we're not, it's not exactly the same. Georgia cleaned up some things. Um, I think Arizona cleaned, I know Nevada. Nevada may have cleaned up some things. I mean, there's some states that had a lot of issues that I doubt we have, but the states that have Democrat, you know, legislatures and, and governors, I mean, they're still kind of for election season and very, very lax chain of custody. Let's go to the phone. Cocky Mike in Darlington. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. Um, I I don't like this forced single-day voting because I haven't voted on election day in two decades because I was working in King Street one time and, you know, planning on leaving at a certain time and getting back home and voting and busted a water line, ended up spending two hours trying to get all that taken care of. And I missed the vote on a presidential election day. And I also don't like what we need to stop is this mass wholesale automatic mail-in vote where you you mail out, you know, tens of thousands of votes in any given community to to, to people who are registered but did not call and ask for it. Um, If you work in this country, you have what identification? You have a Social Security number, right? If we can, if we can get, you know, 250 million workers a Social Security number, then we can give 150 million voters a voter a national voter ID number that follows them regardless of where, what state they're in, what county they're in, wherever they got the same number. And like you talking about, like you were talking about the, you know, uh, uh, serial numbers on on ballots. That ties everything together. Now, the only problem with that is your vote is identifiable. If somebody digs it up, they can look and see what you voted for. But I guess somewhere down the line. 
But let me tell you the problem with that. Any of you guys gotten your, quote, real ID yet? Either one of y'all. No, nope. I have not. I have not. No. Okay. They implemented that policy 12 years ago, maybe, and said in order for you to enter a federal building or get on an airplane, you have to have a real ID. And if nobody knows what the real ID is, then they're doing a horrible job of telling this, spreading this out. I got mine two years ago. Well, guess what? Every year they extend the deadline because not enough people have it. So if we can't get people to get a real ID, how are we going to get everybody a voter ID? You know, a voter ID. That's the problem with my theory. I mean, but it is what it is. If we don't, if we don't quell this problem, I don't like you telling me that my 88-year-old dad with a, a bad hip and needs a replacement has got to go down and stand in the line for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, much less an hour or four hours to vote. And I think that disenfranchises so many people if they have to do that. So, but there's a way we can do it. Like, you know, you call in, you get a ballot, you request it, they bring it, and you you mail it back in or, you know, or take it back in. But um, it, it's a mess. And we'll never solve this as long as the Democrats are able to manipulate the system like they do. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937 is our number. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. So let's ask a simple question. What one thing could be done to create more trust in the election system today? I mean, if half the country don't trust the election uh, or the outcome of the election. I mean, I've read polls. 59% of Americans believe something happened in 2020 that may or may not have changed the outcome of the election. I mean, they don't say the election was stolen. They just say something happened that you can't quite understand or explain. So how do we remove that doubt? I mean, I think all Americans would agree that the more trust we have in our elections, the better off we are moving forward. I mean, our debt's problematic. Our, I mean, to me, I've got a lot of impro- a lot of issues about, you know, the export of and imperialism. And, but, I mean, that's my personal opinion. It's hard to argue that America's better or not with a, a more trustworthy way of electing our, our officials, locally, state, and at the federal level. So what is one thing that we could do? To me, I mean, I, I've said it. It is the, the chain of custody. I think that voters should have a number. I think there should be a corresponding serial number. I mean, I understand the right to privacy. You know, it's my ballot. It's a secret ballot. Nobody has the right to know how I voted or not. But, but I think the, the alternative is far more dangerous. And so with that, with that plan, do you just mail them out to everybody? Here, you know, you have an address of record. Here comes your ballot in the mail, whether you ask for it or not. I, I'm, not I'm not a big proponent of mailing ballots. Yeah. I, I'd Me probably either. have some place. If you want to vote, go get your ballot. And, and when you check in, have that identification number. And you get right. this ballot with a serial number, and you're the only person that can cast that ballot with said serial number. No, I'm not for mailing ballots. Guys, I'm, I'm leveling with you. I'm for making it harder to vote. I mean, that may be un-American. That, that may be not patriotic. That may be against and violate the, you know, the rights and rules of average America. I get all that. I mean, I understand there's a fair debate. But I'm for making it more difficult to vote. I think the republic struggles when we have people who vote and don't know what they're voting for. Um, we know the story. I mean, I, I've read several articles about big housing projects in, in Atlanta where they would drop five, six, seven hundred ballots off at a at a, um, a mail center, kind of got a common area. 
And I'm talking about these big apartment complexes in these big major metropolitan areas where thousands of people live. And they would go to the mailroom and they would leave seven, eight, nine hundred ballots. I mean, what happened to those ballots? We don't know. I mean, that, that's why there's so much concern. We don't know. So, so, no, Rev, I would not be in favor of mailing ballots to anybody under any circumstance. There would be a ballot for Josh, a ballot for Dave, and a ballot for Ken. And it would, you'd, be clearly, you'd clearly understand where the ballot is. It's your job to go pick the ballot up. And it's your job to, it's the, it's the, the person in charge of, I, I wouldn't even call him a poll worker. I mean, it would be some employee. It would be their job to validate, are you who you say you are? You're assigned this ballot with a serial number, and you come back. You know, I don't, I, once again, I'm not for same-day voting, but at some point in time, in a condensed period of time, you've got that ballot, you fill it out, but you don't get that ballot unless you prove who you are. I, I just think there's a way now, now, you know, would somebody help you fill the ballot out? You're not going to get a perfect system. We just aren't. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Takes Mondays to make Thursdays this week. <laughs> uh, Rev and I will not be live at In Living Color Friday. And then Monday, Community Broadcasters is closed for Labor Day. So um, we will conclude the summer working a day less than we unofficially, normally do. Unofficially. 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 You know how that is. The summer. Uh, between Memorial Day and Labor Day. But That's what the, we call summer around here. Exactly. A South Carolina summer. <laughs> we, we call it that. Whether it is or not, yeah, I guess you could argue by the calendar. So just want to make sure you are against mail-in ballots, right? I am. Okay. I, I'm, I'm against mail-in and mail-out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm probably more against mail-out than I am than I am mail-in. I thought about it during the break. Here's what I'd love to see happen. Josh, jump in here and tell me. because you, right. You're keenly interested in these things. So I'm for, and I understand technology. I get it. I'm, I'm getting worn out by a couple of folks who text me saying, um, we're going to be voting by cell phones, man, and computers. And why are you talking about, you sound like a grumpy old man. <laughs> well, I am a grumpy old man 90% of the time. Uh, let me be. But, but I would be in favor. I mean, if, if I were king of the world, I'm not, but if I were. And you also got to be careful about federalizing election law, right? I mean, don't we kind of oppose the federalization of election law. So you know, we, we've always said a state's rights. Federalists always say, well, I mean, I want Georgia to decide what Georgia this believes is best. I want South Carolina, you know, I don't want to, um, California to dictate what South Carolina does, and South Carolina doesn't need to dictate what, what California does. Um, but it comes down to having a Republican legislature or a Democrat legislature. The governor will sign a bill into law or not. So there's, you know, I mean, a lot, a lot of this is academic exercise. But I would be, I mean, if I were king of the world, America doesn't have a king, doesn't need a king. But if America did have a king and it was me, I, I would say this. I want a ballot with a serial number. I want a valid ID with a picture. And when you come to vote, I'll give you that ballot that corresponds with your voter ID number. This serial number has your voter ID number. It's your ballot, your ballot alone, but you ain't leaving the building with it. We're not mailing it out. We're not mailing it in. When you come to vote as a registered voter, there will be a ballot here waiting on you. When you prove who you are, who you say you are, I'll issue that ballot, and we've got a room over there that you can go vote in, but that ballot's not leaving this room. And there would be zero mail-in and zero mail-out ballots. I say zero. That's hard to get to. Zero. You've got men and women of the armed services. You, you got to create some system to allow them um, to vote. 
but but that that may be a way to get around the the, the single day voting. You know, for two weeks prior to the election, somebody at the voting registration office is going to be in charge of a uh, you know a, a variety of ballots. And when Josh walks in, and Josh has his ID and a corresponding uh, voter ID card, and I'm talking about a, a driver's something with a picture on it. I mean, if Josh has a, a picture ID and a and a voter ID card that validates who he says he is, I issue him that ballot with a, a matching serial number, so to speak, or corresponding, I hate to say vehicle identification number, but in essence, that's what we're, I mean, it identifies Josh's, that's Josh's ballot. Josh goes into that room, he fills out that ballot, he, you know, gives that ballot back to the poll worker, back to somebody working at the election commission, and that's the way we count ballots. That that would be my perfect scenario. But now, once again, that gets into voting infringement, federalization of election law, uh, you know, uh, depriving people of the right to vote that may be in a hospital dying of cancer, may be serving the armed forces. I, I don't know. I mean, there's no perfect answer here, but but I think one of the one of the one of the reasons a lot of people like me are suspicious of uh, voter fraud is we're mailing out ballots and we're mailing in ballots. And we've got drop boxes in discrete places around American cities and people stop by and drop. We got, you know, we got mules. We got a lot. I, I just, it leads Sometimes to. Sometimes they stop by and drop in whole buckets of ballots. Let me, Rev, I've seen some of the video. Uh, and I'm not saying I buy into everything Denise D'Souza said. I mean, I, of course he's got an agenda. But you can't leave 300 ballots in a mailroom at an apartment complex and expect everything to be on the up and up. I mean, there's two words. You ready? Human nature. I mean, that's just it. I mean, people are not going to always do what they're supposed to. I'm not. You're not. Nobody is. And when you provide people with ample opportunity to cheat, History says they will. So let's try to not provide people with ample opportunity to cheat. Let's try to tighten it up as much as we can. And I think part of the tightening up is, once again, Josh decides that he's going to vote a week before the election. Josh walks into a room. Josh says, hey, I want, I'd like to get my ballot. I'm ready to vote. The lady says, what is your name? He says, Josh. He says, let me see some ID. He shows her an ID and a voter ID card. She gives him a ballot that corresponds with the voter ID card. Josh goes into a room. He's private. Nobody's there with him. He votes. He brings the ballot back. He gives to the lady. Josh has just voted. There was no mailing out of a ballot and no mailing in of a ballot that I just think leads to corruption. Let's go to the phone. Nick in Lexington. Good morning, Nick. You're on the air. Ken, I've called before and told you how much I like our system as it is. I don't know if you understand, like in Lexington County, there's four locations that they open two weeks before voting. And you literally go in with your ID, they look you up, and they print you your little card on your voting machine with your barcode, and you stick the thing in the regular voting machine, and it prints your district, your precinct's ballot. I mean, it's on the screen. It's the same one that they would do at your precinct, but there's only four in the county. So you just go to the local closest community center, and it's the normal ballot. It's just you vote three days ahead. 
But do you think that's the same way they do it in Fulton County or Philadelphia or Maricopa County, Arizona? We do it. That's how we do it. But but, but that's what I'm saying. I'm, I, okay, I'll, I'll accept that I'm Lexington County. They, they, just, they just have, like in Florence County, you know, sometimes you go to churches, sometimes you go to schools. These were the community centers, like it's West Columbia. The West Columbia Community Center was the one I went to. You can go to the... You can go to, there's one in Pillion, I think, and there's one, and you can go to the main voter's registration thing in Lexington. I'm just saying they just have, they have polls open two weeks ahead, but there's only four or five of them. I, I would call up and, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and, I, and I would be 100% as supportive of that, but that's not what's happening yeah. In Philadelphia, no, that's not what's right. happening in Fulton I, County, Georgia. No. And, and that's where we struggle. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate the award. We struggle is not wanting the federal government to have so much control over things and facets of our life, but but do we trust the Georgia General Assembly to have oversight over Atlanta, Georgia, or the Pennsylvania General Assembly to have oversight over, over Philadelphia? I mean, remember, Kahaley does this for a living, and what did Robert say prior to the 2020 election? I'm worried about Pennsylvania because Trump's only up three. And I think he's got to be up five because there's going to be some, 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 some situations in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia that just don't make sense. And there weren't too many concerns about South Carolina uh, or, honestly, some blue states, you know, that are traditionally blue, your New Yorks and Californias. Well, I mean, were there? And, and, and what I'm, I, I guess the argument there, Rev, is, I mean, people that run these campaigns are not morons. I mean, they, you know, a Democrat understands, yeah, let's go down and turn South Carolina blue. Let, let's go to South Carolina, spend all of these up bucks, and let's try to turn. That, that, that's not even crossing their mind. If you're a Republican, how much money are you really going to spend trying to turn California red? So you kind of let those be. I'm not saying you're not interested in voting integrity. We all should be interested in voting integrity. But I think if you're a Democrat, it's a given. I ain't winning in South Carolina. So why am I that attentive to what's happening there? If you're Republican, I'm not winning in, in California, so why am I? I mean, of course, there are probably things that happen in all these places, and they may affect local races. They may affect statewide. Excuse me. They may affect district-wide races. But, but in the presidential race, it's what? Six states? Seven states? Uh, a half million people that decide who the president of the United States is going to be. So, so these organizations that have malice in their heart – I mean, they're, they're not, they're not, you know, engaged in California. They're not engaged in South Carolina. They're in Pennsylvania. They're in Georgia. They're in North Carolina. They're in Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, Michigan. I mean, that, those are the places they believe are in play. And they're going to invest resources and do all they can to generate as many votes as possible. And I just go back to the, 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 the confirmed stories out there. I mean, the mainstream media didn't cover these stories. But there were multiple reports of, of, you know, these housing complexes, big apartment complexes in Atlanta that had four or 500 ballots dropped off in a common area. Some mail receiving room. That, you're, you're asking for trouble if that's the case. I mean, do you really believe that those ballots sat there harmlessly and somebody eventually said, well, nobody came and got those, so let's throw them in the trash? Of course not. Somebody filled the damn things out. Yeah, and I want to say, if I could, I you know, to we've been talking about this for a few segments. 
and cocky Mike called in a you know a little while ago and brought up the issue of his dad uh who's who's older he he doesn't want his dad sitting out in the sun for four hours to cast his vote which is totally understandable I completely get that but the thing is when we're what we're proposing is a national change and every time you propose something like this people come out and they say well that will cause this issue there's no there's no change that's not gonna have some kind of downside which I totally get, but we have to weigh it against the alternative. So to cocky Mike, I would ask, yes, your dad may not want to vote because he doesn't want to wait in the line for four hours, but would you rather your dad lose not the ability to vote, but the the simplicity of voting for him over the Democrats winning forever and ever? But but I think we go to this, Josh, and, and this is where I've landed. And look, other people have landed in different places. I certainly respect that. I believe the number one way to tighten up what some people perceive to be shenanigans involving elections is to create a, a, a kind of a, um, a rock-solid chain of custody. Right. That ballot is never floating around unattended. That ballot is always accounted for. That ballot is always checked on. And in 2020, we just didn't do that. But let's be very honest. Once again, the election was stolen? I don't know. Did Donald Trump really win? I don't know. I'm not passing judgment on that. I don't have any idea. Um... How many votes were counted that should have been counted? But I do know that during the pandemic, we allowed things to happen that we've never allowed to happen before. And one of the biggest contributors to what I call uh, the lack of integrity is the chain of custody. That there were millions of ballots floating around in certain places that we didn't really know who was in charge of those ballots. Right. And, And that you're asking for trouble. You're asking for people to be very suspicious about how many votes somebody really got, who really counted these ballots, who really cast these ballots, um, and, and we got to tighten that up. I mean, I think voting integrity. Now, now, there's a counter theory, and the counter theory is, I mean, if that's the way it is, the Republicans just have to play better in that world than the Democrats do. I mean, I guess that's the counter theory, and I guess, you know, right now, unless you tighten up some of these chain of custody issues in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and Arizona and Nevada, I think they've tightened them up in Georgia. I mean, I really believe that. I mean, Kahaley has convinced me that the Georgia Republican General Assembly has made sure that what happened in 2020 is not going to happen in 24. There are not going to be millions of votes floating, hundreds of thousands of votes floating around out there unattended to. I mean, the the, the pandemic allowed certain people to be very creative in, in the way they dispersed ballots and collected ballots. I don't believe that's going to be as big a problem in Georgia. I do believe it's still going to be a problem in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada. So, so how do you address that? How do you tighten it up? To me, if you want elections of integrity, you don't have ballots floating around out there unattended. And we just had too much of that in 2020. Let's go to the phone. Bruce in Darlington. Good morning, Bruce. You're on. Good morning. Um, just two things. Um if we identify activities that are wrong, there needs to be heavy penalties for people who are ballot har- harvesting or doing whatever that we can put on the law as thou shalt not do this. The other is there are people who should not be allowed to vote, Alzheimer patients, mental ill patients, and people who would take ballots into them to get them to sign ballots should not be allowed either. 
Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate that. That that gets to the gray area. How how, how demented is too demented to vote? How mentally ill is too mentally ill to vote? Um, I mean, you, we're working towards something unachievable. We're trying to come up with a perfect a perfect scenario. I mean, if if my if 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 a family member that I love is mentally ill, can I be responsible for making sure they understand what they're voting on? I mean, I don't trust a social worker. I don't trust a poll worker. I mean, I think they'd be motivated by something other than the love they have for a family member. But but once again, when you try to create perfect scenarios, you very often infringe upon people's liberties and freedoms. And Rev kind of nodded his head. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how mentally ill is – who gets to say, well, this person's not too mentally ill to vote, but this person is. This person's not as far down the road with Alzheimer's, but this person is. Um, I understand what the, what the caller's saying, and I agree with, you know, the, the consciousness of the voter, the awareness of the voter. But, it's but almost like requiring a civics test yeah, in well, a way. I too. was just going to yeah. say, you know, Vivek talked about that. Well, I mean, I, I don't know that I fully disagree with that. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll yeah. level with you guys. I mean, I'm, I'm on the record. I am, in, in, in the weirdest way imaginable, I am for voter suppression. It's not based on race. It's not based on religion. It's not based on sex. It's not based on ethnicity. Do you know what you're voting on or not? Based on understanding? Sure. Competency. You know, when I say I am for suppressing the vote, I'm for suppressing dumbasses from casting ballots. (laughs) Well, that's an eloquent way to put it. Well, I'm eloquent. Let's go to the phone. (laughs) We have Jeff in Florence. Good morning, Jeff. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Jeff. Hey, uh, how about... (laughs) How about you take the top 10 states with the lowest graduation level and the worst performing schools, and they can't vote? How's that? What do you base that on? So, I mean, just stats. Like, if you're in the top, the bottom 10% uh, or the bottom 10 states uh, in in graduation rates and, you know, education levels can't vote. How, is that good? I, I don't understand the argument you're making. Well, you're saying that people aren't educated and shouldn't vote. No, I'm saying people aren't smart enough to vote. I'm not talking about it. I mean, I know a lot of educated people who aren't smart, a lot of smart people who aren't educated. How do you measure measure education? You take a civics test. Okay, so you think Americans can pass the the civics test? I I mean, do you realize that— How how does someone become an American citizen? Yeah, you, you take a test. You opposed to that? Yeah, yeah, I am for voting rights. No, no, yes, to I become am. American citizen. No, no, absolutely, you should take the test. Okay, you should know about our form of government. You should, like, unlike Rick Perry, you should know there are three branches of government. I agree with that. Right. So, so, uh, we, so, so would we agree? So, so you and I just found some common ground. Right. We would agree right. that if somebody can't identify the three co-equal branches of government, they shouldn't be allowed to cast a ballot. That, it, it, no, I don't believe that because that isn't in the Constitution, is it? No, not at all. Okay, so what what Ramaswamy's talking about and all this stuff we're talking about goes completely against what the founders and the Constitution says, right? Hey, Jeff, hold on a minute. We're back behind again. Sure. I think you do sure, this no on problem. purpose to make us hold you on <laughs> uh, during the break. <laughs> no, so sit tight. The floor's yours, but we got to pay some bills. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Did Jeff hold on? I believe Jeff okay. is still there. Are you Let's there? go back to Jeff. The floor is yours, my man. Hey, so um, just everything you're talking about, you know, requires the Constitution to be amended. Yeah, or you let the state general assemblies decide 
because um, the Constitution doesn't speak directly to it. And, and I'm not for the federalizing of election law. That's where I become somewhat of a hypocrite because I kind of am for the federalizing of election law. Right. But California is not going to do this. New York's not going to do this, right? I would agree. Okay. So, so what are we really doing? hypothesizing for four hours on conservative <laughs> talk radio. Right. I mean, we're not solving any problem. But I mean, I said that. I mean, I, I admitted that I was a bit hypocritical in saying that I want these things to happen. The only way they happen is action by the federal government, and I yeah. don't want the federal government to federalize election law. So I, I mean, I, I preface my commentary by admitting right. that I was fully hypocritical on this. Right. But by engaging in this conversation, it kind of just sows more doubt, don't you think? But I do have a lot of doubt, Jeff. I mean, and, and a lot of my yeah, listeners okay. have doubt about whether the elections are trustworthy or not. Right. It, but in, in just to be clear, in 2000, how many, uh, when the Republicans took uh, control of the, yeah, how many Republicans uh, that lost challenged the elections? <sighs> when they took control of this, this, this Senate again, how many of them? wanted their election challenged. I would imagine none if you if win and win. take control. None of them did. The only person that, I mean, Republicans have lost ground where they should have gained ground. We know that. But Donald Trump's the only one in Kerry Lake. That's it. Jeff, what do you make of, and I'd be interested in your opinion here, What? What? because I've talked about statistical anomalies. What do you make of those statistical anomalies? I mean, do you think that's one of those things? Trump is such a rare bird. Nobody can really yeah. take historical precedent and apply. Yeah, I mean, it happens. Like, there is, a, you know, there's outliers in every situation, right? You and know, he's the ultimate outlier. That would be the argument. He's, he's an outlier that he, again, and I've said this a lot, Joe Biden didn't get 80 million votes. Donald Trump got 10 million extra votes against him. Do you believe, they, see, and I, I think our listeners will be interested in your opinion here. Do you believe that Donald Trump has a greater or less than one in three chance of getting reelected president? So I believe if you nominate Donald Trump as a Republican nominee, you're going to lose again. He's done nothing but lose since 2016. He's not adding any votes. So you think that's less than a one-third, a one-in-three chance of him getting elected? I do. And and earlier um, you were having a, a conversation, um, and this is why. Earlier you were having a conversation about Donald Trump, um, and you know you think he's got a greater chance now. Let me ask you, he's been running from jail. I mean, sorry, he's been running for president longer than anybody in history. He announced earlier that he's running for president than anybody in history, right? Correct. What has he said policy-wise? What has he said he's going to do about that sandwich costing $13 and you waiting an hour and a half? What has he said about what he's going to do to Ukraine besides he'll end it in 24 hours? But, Jeff, you what know as well as I do that Donald Trump is not a policy president. He's a personality. I mean, that his, his campaign, his entire campaign is whether you buy into his bombastic personality, can you tolerate it, can you live with it or not? And I, and I, I said this morning, I'm not blaming 
Joe Biden completely and totally for sitting in a drive-thru for an hour and a half, paying eleven forty-three for a fish sandwich, medium fried, medium drink. But he's the president. I'm the bucks right. going to stop and, and, with him. I, I heard you say that, and I'm asking you in the year plus that Donald Trump's been running for president, has he said anything to address anything? Well, I mean, he really hadn't had time when you think about what he's had to defend himself from. I mean, four indictments, two impeachments. Some of the indictments are after he left. He left office. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't know when Trump will begin to address policy, but the majority of his energy has been spent defending himself against indictments that have never before happened in American political history. So you're you're willing to take a chance on a guy who can't even articulate. I'm more than willing, Jeff. He, I, he was I, a good I am, president. Well, I mean, I'm more. And <laughs> he has a record. Is, and this is where, and I think you'll understand this. I have tried my best to talk myself into believing it's time to move on. But the Democrats won't let me. I mean, the indictments, have, the, the indictments have convinced me that the only choice I can make in the Republican primary is Donald Trump because anybody else it's kind of a, I, I, I'm giving in to the wishes of the American political left, and I'm not going to do that. So, so I'm more inclined today to vote for Donald Trump than I've ever been since he announced his candidacy in 2015. And, and I'll just say this, and, and you, if you rise to the bait, don't, you know, you can't complain about what you catch. And, and if, you, if you nominate Donald Trump, you're going to catch a candidate who can't win. We just disagree there. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. We just disagree there. I think Trump is more formidable today than he was in 16 or in 20. I mean, I, I just think right now, this. I mean, I don't know what it looks like six months from now. I mean, we, we talked about there, there may be a revelation that he did, um, you know, allow some top-secret military information to end up in the hands of someone who could um, cause American safety and security problems. I mean, that, that would be different if that's the case, but... um. But, but right now, we don't have that on the record. And, and I looked at a lot of data after the third indictment. Once again, I'm very interested in the fourth indictment and what independent voters, but Trump's numbers went up with independent voters after the third indictment. That's unusual to me. Uh, Rev was asking this morning about African-American voters. Um, African-American males historically believe they've been targeted by law enforcement. Driving while black. I mean, you know, I'm not saying they are or not. I mean, I'm not. When I say these things, you know, I, it, I don't get frustrated much, but I get frustrated when someone will say, "Well, Ken said such and such on the radio," or the guy on the morning show said such. No, I'm speculating. I don't know this to be true, but but I, I'm I'm guessing that the reason African American males are a little more sympathetic to Trump than they've historically been to Republican candidates. They, they believe that they've been stopped for things they should have been stopped for. DWB. What does that mean? Driving while black. And they believe that Donald Trump is being targeted. That's why you're seeing an increase of African-American males uh, in favor of Donald Trump. Hispanics, once again, kind of an increase with Hispanic males. The, the, the Hispanic male and female have increased in support of Trump. Um, the African-American female has not, but the African-American male has. Now, there's no doubt that Trump has trouble in some of these affluent Republican safe havens. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The suburban mom, the soccer mom, the college-educated white voter that historically has voted Republican, he's got issues there. I make no bones about it. I don't deny that. I mean, that that's a reality about where this campaign is. 
but you're running against a guy who I don't think has a good record to run on. And they're trying to sell Bidenomics. And the polls clearly show that the majority of Americans, by an overwhelming margin, don't believe Biden's economic plans are working. So you're trying to really and truly get the, the, the media to do your bidding for you, and the American public just aren't buying it. So, so I think Trump has a 50-50 or better chance of getting, he doesn't have a 75% chance, but there's no landslide in the waiting. It's going to be a close, close election that 50, 60, 70,000 votes will decide. Uh, of the pool of a million votes, somebody will get about a 30,000 advantage in the, uh, part of three-quarters of a million voters, independent voters in, in about five states. Somebody will get 30,000, 40, 50,000 more than the other. That's who's going to be president. And I think it is very likely, very likely, that we end up with a kind of a similar to 16 and really similar to 20. I mean, I know the Electoral College said 20 wasn't close, but it was. I mean, it was razor thin, 11,600 votes in Georgia, or 27,000 in Pennsylvania, about that same number in, and I mean, it was close. It's 40 or 50,000 votes that go one way and not the other. And you've got, uh, you know, a different outcome. And that's kind of where we are in, in, in America today. So for those who say, you know, nominating Donald Trump is a death wish for the Republican brand, I just don't buy that. And, and I'll ask any, anybody, I mean, I'll, or DeSantis, uh, Ramaswamy, Christie, how are you going to get 75, 76, 77, 78 million votes? I, I, I don't think anybody can. I mean, if, if, if the data is right and 11 to 14% say under no circumstance will I vote for Donald Trump and 30% say if it's not Trump, I'm staying home or I'm voting third party, 30 is greater than 14. I, I just don't know. I mean, it, the, the Republican Party made a mistake that I was sure they'd make. You know what the mistake is? Believing that the Trump voter was a Republican voter. I mean, I think there's a conversion going on. And I, and I think they're willing to hear what the party has to say. But why does the Republican brand feel the need to insult the Trump voter? I mean, I've never understood that. I, I, just, I understand the Democrats insulting deplorables, and you can smell them at Walmart. I mean, I get that. That's, what, I mean, that, that's the binary choice. I'm on one side, you're on the other side. But what was there ever to gain by the Chris Christie's of the world and some of the political... You know, the, the Mitt Romney's of the world. What, what did they believe there was to gain by insulting people that you're trying to convert to becoming a Republican? It just never made any sense to me. Let's go to the phone. Jason and Marion, morning. Good morning there, fellas. Uh, Ken, thanks to Jeff. Um, he kind of changed the, the talk, talking point for this segment, and this would be a perfect time for me to kind of interject um, what – I'm talking, and I'd like to get your take, and I'd also like to get Josh's take because he's of the younger generation, and he might have a different perspective on this. But a lot of times you talk about, you know, the Seinfeld watcher where, you know, they're just going about life. They're not involved like a lot of the callers are with politics every day. They're not listening to talk radio all day or they're not calling in a radio show. But they might once in a while listen to a podcast, or, you know, a sports podcast. Maybe they listen to Joe Rogan or whoever. And it's probably been about three weeks now, but Joe Rogan had Patrick Bet David on. And I listened to that whole podcast, and I'm not sure if you caught any clips or heard any of it, but they talked about all the various different topics. And, of course, the topic of Trump came up. And 
if for those of you who don't know, Patrick Bet David is a, a pro-Trump guy, big Trump supporter, and he's kept antagonizing Joe about when you're going to have Trump on, when you're going to have Trump on. And, you know, in the past, Joe was like, I'll never have Trump on because I don't want to help him. And PBD was kind of trying to say to him, I don't think you're helping him, but if you don't have him on, you're actually helping the Democrats. So I know Joe's kind of had a little back and forth on that. And for whatever the argument is, let's just say that Joe Rogan does have Trump on at some point. We all know that's going to probably, as the term goes, you know, break the Internet. And the last time I checked, I think Joe has about 60 million um, listeners or viewers. Um, And a lot of those are going to be what we call Seinfeld watchers. Would that obviously it's going to help Trump in somewhat, but I'm I'm curious to hear what you would think if if that really does happen. And we already know the left and the media will just you know demean Joe and say, oh look, he's an alt right you know MAGA supporting fascist supporter of Trump now, and but you know he doesn't care about any of that. I'm curious to to think to see what you guys would if that ever if that even does happen. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate that. Um... Josh, let's take a break and I'll come back and because uh, that's an interesting, um, that's an interest not question, that's an interesting scenario. I mean, if Rogan has Trump on, it's good for Rogan, it's good for Trump. I mean, Rogan's probably as big an influencer the internet has, right? I mean, it, it'd be hard to deny he and Tucker and a, few, a couple of others, mm-hmm. but but Rogan's audience is not Tucker's audience. Tucker's would be political junkies, um, you know, Republican primary voters. Uh, Rogan's would be. Very different than that. If Trump were to get invited, what sort of what sort of topics would it serve him well to talk about? I've got an opinion. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. David in the PD. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, and I think y'all were talking earlier about South Carolina and App State, now. Come to mind, Sparky Woods. You remember that name? I do. Yes, sir. That was our coach after uh, Coach Joe passed away. Uh, I watched Rama Swamy yesterday. I tell you, that guy, I don't know if he's a heartthrob, but I'll give him this much credit. He's energetic, and he's a new generation. And Chuck Todd, that just kind of bothered me. All of a sudden, he's asking about a current event, the shooting down in Jacksonville. I guess he's trying to catch him off guard, just like um, – with Pence the other week, he's asking him, Mike Pence, are you MAGA? Are you MAGA? I mean, that's not a fair representation of what uh, journalism is. We already know that. But uh, I just want to make some points. He was talking about, he said, we have a multi-ethnic working class versus the administrative state. And I can tell you who's taking note of this because they had Bernie Sanders on there yesterday on Meet the Press, and he, he's saying on some talking points. He's talking about creeping um, authoritarianism. I guess that's what Trump was doing on January 6th. He said something about right-wing extremism. There was something about Republican uh, billionaire class. Well, people are smart enough to know this billionaire class ain't Republican. And he had some sort of meeting up there in Boston the other day with his inner Democrats. And he's concerned. He was talking about, man, this middle class is starting to vote Republican, and we are losing the Latino vote. 
So he understands what's going on. And the sad thing, remember you had the Bernie wing and the Biden wing. Well, this administrative state, the Bernie wing and the Biden wing are all together. That's going to be a tough opponent. But keep that in mind. The Democrats, they're doing a good job of staying in lockstep. So you guys have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. See, I mean, it would stand to reason that people who have done this for so long are slow to adjust. I mean, the, the, the questions to Chuck Todd asked, or Jake Tapper, or anybody, Dana Bash, um, George Stephanopoulos, uh, you know, name Sunday morning show host, or name media personality, they're, they're still trying to paint Ramaswamy as a former, or a member of the Republican Party that formerly was. And they're, they're, they're failing to understand that this is not a debate today about conservative liberal. Limited government, big, it's not a debate about that. I mean, this is a debate, a debate about the American way of life. And I think Ramaswamy encapsulates some of that debate in, in a very aggressive and radical fashion. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he's a radical. Uh, Josh, you're, you're nodding your head. I mean, there, Trump is an extreme personality. Right. But Trump's not a radical. I mean, there's nothing radical about Well, I mean, I guess the... the, the, the he is radical. I don't know if he's well, he's, he's disruptive. Yes. I mean, he's a, he's a complete and total... He's, he's kind of a unicorn. I mean, nobody does it the way Trump does it. But when, when Trump's asked to explain himself, I mean, the, the explanations he gives aren't radical. Ramaswamy's are. Now, now I tend to gravitate toward uh, radicalism. I think we need radicals in government today. I think the more radical, the better right now because the, the status quo's broken. The way we've done things all these years are broken. Remember at the debate, what did Ramaswamy say that is kind of up? It makes everybody in politics nervous. He said climate change is a hoax. The climate change agenda is a hoax. There, there you go. The climate change agenda is a hoax. Let's do this. You got? You, can you get us in queue, Josh? I can. Here's um here's Ramaswamy again. Um yesterday on CNN, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But but he basically, I mean, he, he calls out the people promoting climate man-made climate change and the agenda, as Rev says, as hucksters. I mean, they're, they're you know they're they're hustlers. I mean, they're just they're trying to make a buck, trying to mislead the American public about what is and what's not. And he does it in such a, I mean, he's, he's uncommonly well-spoken. I mean, he really and truly is. Um, I mean, you know, the, the gift of gab is necessary to be good in politics. He's uncommonly good at it. Now, now you could argue, but he's a bit sophomoric. I mean, at times he comes across as glib and, and a bit nonchalant. I'll agree with that. I mean, if I were to, don't smile as much. I mean, when you're talking about real serious issues, don't have this, you know, debate team and college grin on your face. Because I think that that makes people nervous a little bit. Um, but he's not afraid to be out there. He holds some pretty radical positions in regards to the what I call the um, the conservative mainstream. And, you know, what, what, what has been accepted historically for Republicans to say. Um, I mean, I've been guarded about it. I mean, I've said it before. I don't know. Well, I mean, this guy's basically saying that, you know, the agenda's a con. I mean, it's to make certain people wealthy. You got us in queue, Josh. Let's go to Ramaswamy on CNN yesterday. Transportation system damages, poor air quality, deteriorating human health, flooded coastal properties, and it goes on and on and on. So my question for you is about the remedy. 
if you don't want to cut fossil fuels, which you just said, you don't want to cut carbon emissions or promote clean energy, what would your policies be to slow things like droughts, like flooding and other damage to our planet? I think we should focus on adaptation and mastery of any change in the climate through technological advances powered by fossil fuels and other forms of energy. I have no opposition to what nuclear energy. What does that mean? Energy. What then does that I mean? do think it's a bit of a mystery. What, what does that mean is look at the quality of our buildings. Look at the quality of temperature controls. This is actually what has allowed human beings to die less of climate-related disasters today than before. And the reason I call the climate change agenda a hoax, Dana, is that it actually has nothing to do with the climate. This has to do with global equity. And the reason why is the same people who are opposed to carbon emissions are also among those who are most opposed to nuclear energy, the greatest form of carbon-free energy production known to mankind. This so doesn't you, make so sense unless you actually energy? call this is out for what your, it is. Is that global one of your equity. remedies? Absolutely. Oh, okay. I'm unapologetically pro-nuclear so energy. Saying... In fact, I've laid out a okay. plan to get government regulation out of the way for nuclear energy. Can I just quickly go back? So you're saying, like, build taller buildings and have better air conditioning and heating systems? That's your remedy for climate, the climate crisis? Well, there's a, there's a fuller totality of the way we use fossil fuels to live more advanced lives that protect us from all risks, not just climate-related risks, but all risks to humanity. Right now, most people who are dying are dying, actually, of lack of access to energy at all, not because of the effects yeah. of climate change. The models that you described are, I think, badly fabricated. And if you want a good piece of evidence for this, remember in the 1970s, that's not that long ago, in the 1970s, the same expert class was warning of a global ice yeah. age if we didn't stop using fossil fuels. That same expert class is now war okay. warning of global warming. So I think it is a fatal conceit of false hubris. And the reality is we should focus on human flourishing, not carbon emissions. That's what we should measure. How do human beings flourish without carbon? Uh, emitting fuels. I mean, I, I, that that would be such an interesting conundrum to work through. That there is no doubt that human flourishment has accelerated in a way never known to man with the advancement of refinery of petroleum or refinery of oil to petroleum, and, and what you know the the way that energized economies and brought about human advancement and an industrial revolution. How does, what, what is the next, I mean, in other words, I, I guess what Wamasami said, what is the next human flourishment dynamic and what is the fuel source? I mean, he's saying nuclear, isn't he? I mean, to me, isn't he, he, is. isn't he basically saying, okay, if we're going to try and, and, and adjust our economy moving forward so we don't emit as much carbon, don't burn as much fossil fuel, nuclear is the only alternative and the people that are against burning fossil fuels are also against nuclear energy. So if you're against the burning of fossil fuel and you're against building nuclear plants, how does humans flourish for the next 100, 200, 300 years? They don't. They won't. I mean, there, there's no example in human history of a, an economy not being able to, to, to properly or the energy necessary to drive an economy to a place where human beings flourish and the quality of life improves and sustains, there is no other example. And and we're, I mean, we're going to trust these these experts that, to Ramaswamy's point, fifty years ago said the inevitable ice age is upon us. 
It, it's it's bizarre. It's it's crazy to me. But he does not do it in soundbite fashion. I mean, he does it in a very articulate and understandable. And I mean, I think he goes to a, a, a degree of sophistication that most Republicans have historically not not gone to. I'll tell you what I'd love to watch, and I'd pay money. I'd love to see Ramaswamy debate John Kerry. Oh, that'd be good. I mean, I'd love to see John Kerry sit down and explain why he is advocating for things he is and let Ramaswamy just, I mean, it's, it could be civil, but it would be such an interesting debate about what one believes is the future of energy and how humans flourish in that future of energy producing and let Ramaswamy explain himself. Now, I don't know where Kerry's position is on nuclear. I know where a lot of his funders are. I know where the liberal left is. I mean, they're against nuclear. I mean, they believe wind and and solar and I guess hydro can provide enough power to for humans to flourish, you know, in the next century as they have in the last century. But it's bizarre to me. Now, here's where I think Republicans end up on the good side. When I read polling, and I mean the 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 Democrats are trying to make a big to do about energy and about, you know, climate change. Most Americans, because Dana Bash just said, if you listen to her, she said, um, what are we going to, what are your, what are, what is a, a, a Ramaswamy administration going to do to control the climate? I mean, the answer is nothing. I mean, that, that that's the answer. I mean, we're going to contribute to clean energy. We're going to try to find, a, you know, a, 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 we're going to allow the market to force us down roads and avenues of cleaner and and more efficient and more effective energy production. I mean, that's the marketplace. We've historically relied on the marketplace to do these things. Now, I think the one thing he did say is we're going to open up the marketplace of nuclear energy. I mean, I when I hear that, you know what I hear? Permitting and regulation and, you know, the um the red tape required to build a nuclear facility today. I think a Ramaswamy administration would streamline a lot of that. It would be far more, uh, I don't know if I can say this with a straight face. Um, the cross nuclear facility doesn't fail under a Ramaswamy administration. I mean, I, I'm, I'm being provocative. I don't know that to be the case, but I'm throwing that out there. In a Ramaswamy administration, the amounts, uh, the the amount of involvement the government had in relation. I mean, some things happened there with Mitsubishi and uh, Westinghouse that that I doubt government could foresee. But I think I think Ramaswamy would embrace. Here's an interesting question. I'd, I'd ask Ramaswamy: um, Are you familiar with the the shuttered potential nuclear facility that was to be built in South Carolina? I am. What? How could the federal government get that back on track? I mean, if South Carolina believes it's operating at an energy deficit in 20 years and it needs to create new energy, it's growing, at, you know, it's growing one of the five fastest growing states in America. Um, what would a Ramaswamy administration do to allow that project to be put back on the board? I, I, he may say nothing. I mean, it's done. You know, they pulled the plug. There's nothing we can do about it now. There, there's more favorable sites and more favorable locations. But you do wonder that, you know, during the SCANA, what was it, SCANA and Santee partnership that led to the, um, the idea of a cross-generating facility and then the, the construction of that, what would that look like in a Ramaswamy 
administration. Don't know. Don't have any idea. But those would be, I mean, that, that would be some of the interesting conversations that we haven't had but would be very interesting um, to have. How many Republican candidates for office have ever offered up as concise an answer as Ramaswamy has about energy policy or proposal? I mean, it's it's refreshing to me. He is a radical. There is no doubt about it. Some of his concepts are are a bit unique to the Republican Party, but he's so interesting and refreshing. Um, He can be glib. He can be vain. Um, He can come across as the guy who got picked up, picked on in school, but made a billion bucks and said, look at me now. I mean, am I right, Rev? Would you agree to that, Josh? <laughs> a little Josh? bit of that. I mean, th- 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 there's a certain aura that he has at times when, when he's like, um, yeah, you-, you guys picked on me in the eighth grade. I ended up with a biotech company, sold it for $600 million. You know, h- how's life working out for you? <laughs> I don't know that people are enamored with that. And as he gets a closer look, um, I-, I don't know if you saw this or not, but Elon Musk suggested over the weekend on Twitter that Trump picked Ramaswamy to be his running mate. Hmm. Or he retweeted and put 100%, 100% signal or sign by when someone said, you know, of all the candidates in the Republican primary, there's only one that has stood out, and that is Ramaswamy. And I would encourage Trump to seriously consider Ramaswamy as his running mate. Now, Haley says it has to be a female. I mean, emphatically, it has to be a female. Trump can't win unless he has a female running mate. That's Haley's opinion. I don't know what the polling says in relation to that. But I do think Ramaswamy would energize younger Republican voters into being a part of something. They're not doing it because their dad said do it. You know, Josh is voting a certain way because his dad, and, you know, his, I mean, his dad had an influence. I mean, I'm sure I had an influence on my kids. And they're inclined to kind of give me the benefit of the doubt when it comes to things they're not as worldly and familiar about. But if Ramaswamy's on that ticket, I think people Josh's age are not just interested in voting for the Republican, but energized to be a part of this, what would be a pretty radical ticket. I mean, let's be honest. If you got Trump at the top and Ramaswamy, you know, is the VP, that's a, that's a, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it would be different. I'll just, I'll just leave it pretty there. Aggressive it would be aggressive all the way around. Pretty aggressive. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Tim and Pamplico. Good morning, Tim. You're on. Hey, good morning. How y'all fellas doing this morning? Hey, Tim. Hey, all right. So up there at Jenkinsville at the Scanna Santee Cooper fiasco, first of all, they all right, plant Vogel in Georgia, just across the river. That plant was started at the same time or after Jenkinsville with the same Westinghouse AP1000 um, nuclear generators. Vogel 3 is now producing energy and is online. Vogel 4 is, I guess, expecting any time. All right, so we go to Jenkinsville. Oh, by the way, at Plant Vogel, they decided somebody, you know, got kind of smart, and they said, hey, why don't we go ahead, since we're having so much trouble, let's finish three and work out the engineering faults before we get to this. You know, if not, then three and four, we're going to be always bumping our heads because we don't know what, how we straightened up the engineering faults. Um, and so they decided to just go with three, and get it done, then they could transfer over the design changes into four, and it moved smoothly. Okay, so uh, also at Plant Vogel with Georgia Power and Southern, one of the Southern Company, I think, uh, 
they've got well over like two or three, four, six million customers because they go all the way down into Florida, Alabama, everywhere to pay for their plants. Now we'll move on over to Jenkinsville and Scanna. Scanna and Santee Cooper had less than a million customers to combine to build their plant. All right, and see somebody even said, why don't we build unit three before we do unit four and then we can incorporate the design changes into unit four and it'll go along faster when we finally get there. We can also do it with less manpower by that time because we'll have the design changes in. Somebody amongst them said, oh no, we insist on going both plants at the same time. Okay, so there is a lot of, you know, what happened up there at Jenkinsville. And see where Ramaswamy is going to come in with the nuclear um, regulatory commission. Once you leave out of containment, the unit that's built for the nuclear containment, none of that radiation flows into the boiler or the rest of the building. What they failed to realize when building the plants in Jenkinsville was that containment wall, that stuff is supposed to be over there under the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. All that welding, all that inspecting, all that documentation, all of that has to be done under in, 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 uh, NRE. All right? But on the other side of that wall, just the boiler, where the, um, just the heat exchange goes on, all of that's boiler code. But they insisted on in, NRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, rules and regulations, inspections, documentation, stuff like that, which all that stuff would have been documented anyway now under boiler code, but they insisted on it re reaching Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and, and it, it had no business being over there. They were out of their realm in there and in, in what they were. Now, would it, is it helping things? Oh, we'll, we'll contend that it would, but they were out of their realm. And that's what went on with a lot of these nuclear plants and where, again, Ramaswamy, it probably has a good idea. Let's get them out the boiler side and the other plant side and all of this and just be under what they're supposed to be in, and that's in containment. But that's a brief synopsis of what happened and what went on with those nuclear plants. And, the one again, the one in Georgia is already producing nuclear power. Well, anyway, the, talk to you all guys later. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. Streamlining. I'm getting government out of the way. But government has a fundamental and a functional role in, in permitting and regulating. I mean, I don't think people believe – you should build a nuclear reactor in your backyard without asking anybody for permission. But I think reasonable and having, you know, people in government understanding what the people in private sector business are trying to do, working hand in hand. Instead of being an impediment, be somewhat of a partner in, in creating opportunities. And energy is going to be a big deal. I've said it 100 times. I'll say it 101. Energy and debt. I mean, we, be, we better get serious about both. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Verd Odom, Marlboro County. Hey, Verd. Good morning. How y'all doing? Hey, Verd. Good. A uh, couple things, Ken. Uh, I sort of agree with Robert Cahaley. I think that a woman on the ticket with President Trump uh, is going to be a huge plus. But uh, I look for it to be Christy Nome from South Dakota. I don't look for it to be Nikki Haley. But I do think that will be a plus for the ticket. I also think that. Uh, Senator Scott's going to be in the mix of things, too, uh, when the discussion about a vice president for President Trump comes about. Um, two big hearings today. I don't know if you talked about them this morning, one in D.C., one in uh, Florida, one in D.C. with Jack Smith. Uh, he wants the trial to begin on uh, January the 2nd. 
uh, before we have even the first primary on January the 15th in our or caucus, excuse me, in uh, Iowa on January the 15th. Uh, in order to do that, we discovered that uh, I guess uh, Jack Smith thought he was being cued about 11 and a half million pages. Uh, the Trump attorneys would have to review 100,000 pages a day in order to get, uh, get that done before January the 2nd. So I doubt it's going to happen uh, uh, the uh, first first court date. In Florida, of course, Mark Meadows is trying to get his thing moved to uh, federal court. If he does that, I guess everyone, including President Trump, they'll all follow suit. And the last thing... Um, I met Ramaswani on May the 20th, uh, talks a good game and stuff, but I think the luster of him will eventually wear off. Three weeks ago, he said that he was in favor of legalizing all drugs, including hard drugs. With the drug situation we have in this country right here in the PD area, terrible drug situation for everybody. And then the other thing, he said that uh, without even knowing the crimes, that the cr biggest criminal fine in American history, the Bidens, uh, he said he would be in favor of pardoning them. So those are not uh, Republican ideas. They're, they're not anything that mainstream Republicans will agree with. And uh, that's all i got to say this morning, Ken. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate it. See, in the interesting part of Verd's comment, what is the mainstream Republican today? I don't think we really know. <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, I don't profess to know. I think we're learning. We're understanding. Um... I mean, Ramaswamy, I said it earlier, he's a radical. I mean, there is no doubt about it. He holds some pretty radical positions, but he's on his way to second place in a Republican primary. If you can identify a mainstream Republican, what is their opinion of America first Republicans? <sighs> That's an interesting. Naive. Well, I mean, well, I, mean I just think we're, we're, tr we're saying grace over that now. Yeah. I mean, I, you know. Trying to figure it out. Verd thinks he understands it, and, and Verd probably does what a mainstream Republican is. I think I understand what a mainstream Republican is, but, but we're, we're in an evolution right now. I mean, we're trying to sort out this, um, this coexistence of what I'll call remain mainstream Republicanism and America first is America first mainstream Republicanism. No, I mean, in, in all of my life since Reagan, you know what it was strong national defense kind of participating in the global economy um, you know, not, not lax immigration policy, but, you know, reasonable immigration policy, America first, non-globalist, non-interventionist, strict adherence to immigration law on our Southern border. And nobody's really won that debate yet. We're still having that debate, um, within, I guess the, the statistic that keeps me up at night, I mean, if any does is. If 30% of Republican voters today would vote for one candidate and one candidate alone, what does the Republican Party look like if that's not the candidate? T take Ramaswamy off the stage last week. What does that debate remind you of? To me, it's a debate of Republican politics 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, you take Ramaswamy out of the equation, and it sounds like a... um. A bunch of neocons talking about Ukraine, talking about debt, talking about taxes. Nothing inspiring about that. I mean, nothing interesting to me about that. And I think that's why Ramaswamy has ascended. People find him interesting. Uh, I think I think Verge right. I mean, people don't agree with everything he says. I don't agree with everything he says. But but he says it. He's uncommonly well spoken, 
and he's willing to say things that are out of the political mainstream as it relates to Republican primary voters. So, so when you say the mainstream Republican Party, what is that today? Is Mitt Romney a mainstream Republican today, or is Josh Hawley? Is Rand Paul more mainstream today than he's ever been? I think he is. I mean, I do. I think, I think, I think Mitt Romney's less mainstream than Rand Paul. I think when Trump, you know, prior to Trump showing up in 15, Mitt Romney would have been the standard bearer of mainstream Republican. And Rand Paul would have been fringe, extreme. You know, he's one of these isolationists, or at least a non-interventionist. And he's one of these, um, you know, that wants to ban the Fed and abolish the Fed and, you know, a little bit whacked out on some of these things. Uh, if you polled all Republican primary voters today, and the question was abolishment of the Fed, what would that number look like? Involvement in Ukraine, what would that number? It's fundamentally different. I don't know what it is today, but I can assure you of this. It ain't what it was in 2014 or in 2012. I mean, in 2012, the Republican Party had pretty much made its mind up. It was the party of globalist or, or globalism and interventionism. And, you know, America, I think the Republican Party kind of flew the flag higher than anybody on what our obligation is to the world around us. And, and means of security and organization of, you know, NATO. Um, how many Republicans before Trump complained about other members of NATO not paying their fair share? I never heard anybody. Never heard. I mean, I'd read places that, you know, um, Germany didn't want to commit as much of their uh, GDP. I've read where Italy and all, some of these other, you know, so, nobody ever said anything about it. But now all of a sudden it's topical. I mean, it, it's not. It's not the biggest issue in the GOP, but I think a majority of GOP voters now question whether NATO's in our best interest or not. Are we paying more than our fair share so Germany can pay less than their fair share? Uh, you know, the Republican voter are the ones who are kind of tuned into that. I mean, I've not heard anybody in the Democrat Party complain about it. I mean, it goes kind of back to what I said. We're the counterculturalists now. But we really hadn't embraced it. But because we do, we're not sure we like being the counterculturalists, We've been the party of law and order. Now, now we're the party of questioning law enforcement. We've been the party of, um, of you know, um, funding the military to the highest degree imaginable. Now we're the party of questioning whether or not it's in our best interest to fund the military. If you polled Republican and Democrat primary voters today and said, um, and, and the question was in regards to our involvement in Ukraine, it would be an inversion. I mean, there would be more Republicans today than Democrats questioning whether or not we need to be involved in Ukraine. If you question the defense budget, should the defense budget be less or more than a trillion dollars a year? The Republican Party would be the party that a majority would say less. We spend too much on defense. We're trying to export American imperialism. We're trying to make people around the world do as we wish them to do. I mean, historically, that's been the Woodstock crowd. I mean, that, that's been the Democrats. That's been those who listen to Bob Dylan on their Walkman, you know, smoking a joint. I mean, that, I mean I'm <laughs> serious. Walkman. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of the way we perceive those people to be. You know, they, they don't care about national security. And it's funny how that has flipped. It has flipped. It's absolutely flipped because the American worker, the American family, and the American way of life have, have collectively kind of agreed subconsciously that, you know, neither party's really acting on my behalf. I mean, one has historically said, you know, we're the party of the working man and working woman. That's been the Democrats. And it's been kind of a, a cozy relationship with labor unions. 
that 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 would be the next shoe to drop, I think. So let's say the majority of workers are voting for Republicans, but the majority of union bosses are sending contributions to Democrats. I mean, isn't that kind of an asymmetrical relationship? Don't we talk about the donor class and the Republican primary voter are in sort of an asymmetrical relationship? Now, Drew McKissick has to say, no, we're not. I mean, we're at odds with one another, but we're not in an asymmetrical relationship. But if 65% of the American working class are all of a sudden voting for the America First agenda, but 70% of contributions are still made uh, to Democrat candidates, isn't that, I mean, I know it's at, at odds with one another, but isn't it kind of an asymmetrical uh, relationship? And I think that's where we are, and I think that's where we're headed. And I'm not accusing Verdon of not understanding where the party is. I think he's well aware of where the party is. I just think at times we convince ourselves that it hadn't shifted that fundamentally. And, and I think it has. I think we've had a fundamental, generational shifting and realignment in the Republican Party. Some are more than willing to accept and even embrace this change. Others are like, well, it's changed a little bit, but I'm not sure it's changed as much as those guys on the radio and those podcasters want. All I can tell you is this. Ramaswamy is about to catch DeSantis. Will he fade? Will he be proven to be a paper tiger? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But but as we sit, there are as many Republican primary voters that find him an acceptable alternative to Trump as Ron DeSantis, more than Chris Christie, more than Nikki Haley, more than Tim Scott. Why? I mean, that, that's, that's kind of where I'm headed. Tim Scott's an alternative to Donald Trump. Nikki Haley's an alternative to Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis was the alternative to Donald Trump, who right now appears to be the most popular alternative to Donald Trump. Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy. And and Verge right. I mean, he may take, he he may continue to take very radical, very controversial positions and spook off uh, uh, some of the primary voters. But right now where we sit... He'd probably finish second in a um, in a primary. I mean, it may, maybe third. I think DeSantis still has the organizational structure and the funding, and money's still the mother's milk. Um, we talked about DeSantis is spending about $800,000 to keep his polling where it is per percentage point. Ramaswamy's at about $40,000 per percentage point maintenance. I mean, it, it's obvious who's getting more bang for their buck. DeSantis is not getting anywhere near as much as um as Ramaswamy is eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Um, we'll do some trivia when we get back in just a couple of minutes. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. This is the beginning of Labor Day week. Always a big deal around here. You got the start of college football. I know the Catholics started this weekend. The Catholic University of America. I insulted Catholics last week a little bit, and I want to take that back. I didn't mean to <laughs> insult when I talked a little bit about the infallible Pope. Um, I want to take that back. We got Catholics who listen to this show. Um, they're as in tune with God as I am. As about, we, we Baptists from time to time think we're the only ones going to heaven, but, but I will agree there'll be some other denominations other, other how, than, how generous uh, other, other than the, yeah, we'll, we'll, I mean, we'll mind the fort and we'll probably have the best seats in the house, but we'll, um, we'll let some folks in the upper deck of the stadium known as, uh, as the hereafter. Anyway, here, here's my question. You ready? Because we're talking about the beginning of college football season, and Clemson's playing Monday night against Duke. I mean, that's I guess 
Long weekend, no NFL. Um, LSU and Florida State. Florida State are playing Sunday, Sunday. night because of no uh, NFL. The Gamecocks and Tar Heels play Friday night. No, thir- uh, Saturday. Saturday night. I'm sorry, Saturday night. Somebody's playing Friday night. Somebody's playing Thursday. Thursday anyway, yeah. from Thursday it's, until Sunday or it's Monday, a it, it's a long weekend of college football. But there's a race in Darlington. And I want to talk a little bit about the race in Darlington in relation to our Takes Mondays to Make Fridays trivia. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. NASCAR is all about sponsorships, right? I mean, it, it's, you know, the guy gets out of the car and he says, I want to thank 65 companies. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and then, then he says, you know, the car began to handle such and such. And in 1985, Bill Elliott won a race in Darlington, and it was kind of a culmination of a promotion that NASCAR came up with called the what? I mean, the person that won three of the four grand jewels or crown jewels in NASCAR won what? 843-661-0937 is our number. Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? Yeah, million dollars. That's not, yeah, you're right, but that's not the name of it. There was an official sponsor and that named that. Does anybody else want to try? Hi, you're on. You know the answer? Yeah, the Winston Million. The Winston Million. You're right. Winston. Imagine the day that they were advertising <laughs> Winston cigarettes on um on NASCAR races. Who is this? Where are you calling from? This is Earl Bullard. I'm from Venezuela. Okay, Earl. Thanks for listening, my man. And um, I think Bill Elliott in 1985 won at Daytona, won at Talladega, had a chance at Charlotte and didn't win, but then won in Darlington, won three of the four Crown Jewels in the same year, and became the Winston Million winner. And that's back when a million dollars was a lot of money, Rev. Didn't have to <laughs> right. be the Winston Billion now to get anybody's I guess. attention. Um, thanks to Pepsi of Florence for, um, I mean, they, they've been a big part of racing around here for a long, long time. Uh, for a long time, it was the Mountain, Mountain Dew, Dew Southern, Southern 500. Yeah. You remember um, that well. But uh, Earl will get his uh, six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays to make Fridays, T-shirts, um, so yeah, we'll, um, we'll be at it today, tomorrow, Wednesday, and Thursday. We don't know for sure, but it looks like some bad weather will make its way into our area on Wednesday. This hurricane that is making its way along the, the Gulf coast of Florida will swing a little bit. I mean, it's a little more optimistic today than it was yesterday. And maybe we can, some of these, um, some of these controlling forces, Rev, some of these uh, winds will steer the storm even further uh, to the east, and maybe we can get a pass on being in harm's way. Uh, if we're lucky. As of now, it's a tropical storm expected to be a hurricane, I guess, very soon. Um, unfortunately, it looks like when it approaches the coast of Florida between the Panhandle and Tampa, and this is obviously today's 8 o'clock report that came out, it's listed as a major hurricane, over 110 miles per hour winds. Uh, when it gets over to the, the track, takes it to Brunswick, Georgia, it's still a hurricane. And then right now, the center of the storm track takes it off of the coast of South Carolina. It looks like about Georgetown at 1 a.m. Thursday as a tropical storm. So still a lot of wind and rain, but obviously downgraded at that point. And we think by the weekend, I mean, obviously, if there's power outages and some other damage, It'll be a pain in the you-know-what. But uh, other than that, we don't think we're going to have life-threatening conditions here. We'll do the best we can to keep you aware of what is likely to happen. But obviously, I think um, the state of Florida is under under some sort of emergency ordinance 
Um, Ron DeSantis down there earning his money. Um, this might be the break his campaign needs. I mean, if he can appear to be presidential during uh, the arrival of the landfall of a hurricane. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow, and we'll try to cram five days of radio into four. <laughs>